people don't quite understand what the point of this stuff is. One, it's fun. It has to be fun. So if you don't like it, f you. The Black Rifle Podcast starts now. Clay, it's good to have you, man. It's always good to be here. Yeah. It's been too long. I know. I was, uh, do you listen to a lot of NPR? Is that uh, some, some, yeah. 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 I was I was more joking about that, but that's funny. No, actually, I do listen. My wife listens to NPR all the time and usually fills me in on the details. Isn't it interesting? I used to listen to that quite a bit mm-hmm. because it's just news. Well, it was supposed to be objective, right? Yeah. I'm not sure it is. But. No. There's still things like, do you remember like the Prairie Home Companion? Do you remember? Do you ever listen to that? This is like mm-hmm. this crazy NPR, uh, like on the weekends, they had this show where it was like a reenactment like from a like a 1930s radio show is awesome it was really, really good yeah. i never it was really good it was like uh like because i i mean i love radio and i love like you know like that kind of like 1930s 40s stuff i think it's really cool but i don't know why i started off like that yeah uh what's going on with so i think the first first question i got is what do you think the biggest priority is for? Because I think we we kind of share this. Uh, you're a little bit older than me, but we share a little bit. Just Not, yeah, just, just a, a little, little bit. Yeah. But we share the mission intent, and we try to understand the priorities of not only service but then post service responsibility. 100%. So. From your perspective, I mean, obviously you can highlight your background for those people that don't know, but what do you think the most pressing priority is for guys that are transitioning? So transition out of the military? Yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest priority? Well, I would say when you're transitioning out, and this is what I share with pals uh, that are, you know, I try to pay it forward, right, Mm -hmm. by doing it. I think the number one priority is your VA stuff, right? It's not, and I say that not because you're making a journey, but that's an essential part because, you know, and I tell people, hey, the winding lamp is lit, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, we're very stoic. I mean, I was an aviator. Right. I never said anything to anybody at the dock. I mean, a flight surgeon was not my friend. Yeah. All right? Um, But I think you got to be honest with it and project, even though if you have this ailment or a PTSD or TBI kind of issue and it's not really bothering you right now, you have to project forward because now you're talking about the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So I would say number one priority for guys and gals getting out is get your VA stuff square. Get it documented in your medical records. Um, You know, and my sense is VA's not trying to not pay you. It's a bureaucracy, right? It's mm-hmm. just a process for them. Because um, I went through it, obviously. Yeah. So number one, and this, and like I said, I tell this to all the guys and gals that I've talked to, um, is square that away. And you do that while you're still in, obviously, right? Some of that's working with your docs and the medical records and getting stuff documented. After that, I think the most important thing is when you get out, is you got to really make three critical decisions. And uh, and I'll explain it here in a moment. And I screwed it up, okay? The three decisions are, you know, one, um, where do you want to live, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you want to live? Two, job satisfaction. 
And three is compensation, right? Like, where do you want to be? You know, what, what's your personal financial situation? You know, what, how much do you want to grind? Right. What do you want to do? And I'll give you my uh, completely wrong approach. Not completely wrong, but I got it wrong. Um, and I and I sh- and I think it's important to share lessons learned. Is you know I a mentor told me that when I was retiring, and I you know I was just sh- I was one month shy of forty one years, seventeen years old when I came in, mm-hmm. fifty eight when I got out. Yeah, my my youngest kid was sitting in the audience. He was three months younger than me when I joined. <laughs> right? I mean, you think about yeah, it. so. I had right. a circuitous yeah. journey at best, right. but. I figured, okay, number one for me, uh, and you prioritize those three things, location, compensation, job satisfaction. And I prioritized prioritized them this way. I prioritized location one. I had a kid who was going to go into his senior year of high school. I'd already jacked him around. He was already on his second high school, probably sixth school overall. And I'm not moving him, right, his senior year. So that was easy. In Tampa, and I was retiring out of SOCOM as the director of operations. And and after this, I'll go into a little bit of my background. But um, And then second, I figured compensation. I got limited shelf life, right? After a while, you become irrelevant. Nobody wants to know what SOCOM did in the 80s and all that kind of crap after a while, right? Right, yeah. And then uh, third, I th- job satisfaction. I said, well, I'll get my status. This is what I was thinking. I'll get my satisfaction from doing benevolent stuff. I'll get my satisfaction from spending time with my family. Right. I would say I got it wrong. I didn't get it wrong necessarily with location, but focusing on compensation over um, job satisfaction was a mistake, which I quickly realized was a mistake Um, because it doesn't matter really in the end of the day and or in the final analysis how much money you make i mean it does because you got to take care of your family and all that but it i use the analogy that the money becomes sort of like wallpaper when i when i was a lieutenant you know um, when i got in commission made i was first lieutenant i got promoted to captain Mm -hmm. that was a huge pay bump back then i mean it was like three or four hundred bucks a month maybe more i can't remember if you look at the pay it's still a pretty good gap right right a leap and I thought, holy crap, I'm in tall cotton right here, man. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm like, trust me, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're yeah. like, wow. And then what I realized is after a few months, it's like you don't even notice it anymore. Like maybe you, you know, you pay off some bills, maybe you up your quality of life, but it doesn't, it's not like you appreciate it day to day. And I think that scales. I think that it doesn't matter how much you make, really. I mean, it does. Again, I'm not being uh, presumptuous here. I just think that job satisfaction ended up for me being the number one thing because that influences your life with your family. That influences, you know, everything else. And, you know, I'm the, when I retired after 41 years, and you know this very well, I wasn't planning on getting into the nonprofit world. I mean, I, knew I was going to do something, but right. I didn't know what. But when the Special Ops Warrior Foundation came open, I hesitated, right? Because like one of my mentors said, you know, nonprofit means nonprofit, (laughs) right? So, and you got to be, you know, you got to be good stewards and you got to be careful of, you know, you can't pay them that much. It's not appropriate for donors money to go to somebody like me, Uh, at least not a significant portion. So, 
But when I started it, and when I started, when I did take the job after that initial hesitation, it was the best thing for me. I'm giving back. I'm still serving. I'm having a dramatic impact on the lives of these family members that have sacrificed for their country, right? In a way that they never signed up for, right? We signed up. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had brushes with death. We've had all that, mm-hmm. but we signed up for it. We didn't want it to happen, but we knew it was always a possibility. So I think, you know, now I'm having, I'm, I think I'm one helping these families that richly deserve our support. Two, I think we're making our country better. And, it, you know, we don't push college. We say, hey, we want you to make an informed decision. And when you, you know, and we start at preschool and we go all the way through. Mm-hmm. So I think finding, you know, and going back to your, your basic question, I would really look at what your passion is. The other thing is if you're like squirrel, you know, every single thing that comes up, it's a shiny penny and you're following it, I think you become overwhelmed. And I think if you scope it down to those three decisions and you prioritize those with your family and you say, hey, you know, it for me now in the rearview mirror, job satisfaction, location, compensation isn't even part of it. For me, it's two because that all works itself out, right? I mean, it may be a deal breaker, but um, to me, I've been with the foundation since I retired. I didn't right. expect to be there this long. I'm, I'm, I'm closing in on six years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my, the way I would prioritize getting out. And I, you know, I got a whole checklist of, I've, I write notes for mentors and I've mm-hmm. sort of created a checklist that I print out and I sit down over a beer and chat with, you know, husbands and wives getting out and saying, Hey, here's, here's my lessons. Right. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to those those three basic decisions first, and that informs everything else. So VA, and then you know, make a transition. The other thing I think is a really big thing. And it's not a priority, but it is a factor. Um, one, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. When you get out, that life that you had, mm. which we miss, right? I miss it. I know you miss it. Right. I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to go back to it, but I treasure what I had. Yeah. But I think there's part of that, too, is like you treasure what you had, but you also like as as you get older and I see this within my peer group and I see it outside of the military. It's like they look back on their youth. So it's part of this is you look back at, you know, the your your physical form. Yeah. The the presentation of opportunity which is like the rest of your life yeah so part of this is just a deeply emotional psychological thing that you we 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 all deal with as humans as we get older and then the other piece is obviously the the operational role and the professional uh, there's two ways you i think you can look at it you can look at it you know pining away for what once was which will never be again well, I think I think that's why I. I mean, I'm, I don't want to interrupt you, but I no. think that, that part of this is it's like dealing with your mortality is also dealing like we we we've accepted the circumstances that we're, we're we're going to die, especially if we did multiple combat rotations. We've all kind of dealt with this psychologically, yeah, yeah, for right? sure. The other piece to the transition is dealing with the fact that that life is gone. Hundred percent. That's my whole point. Yeah. It's gone, and so you can either be regretful that it's gone. Or you can be grateful. Mm. 
grateful that you had the opportunity. Yeah. Look, I was a dirtbag. When I joined... The, <laughs> You're a dirtbag. I was. I mean, I was a dirtbag. I was 17 years old. I was a high school dropout. I was living in a foster home. The Marine Corps, and it was, you know, it wasn't a big kumbaya kind of hug thing. You know, it was, you know, I had to perform, but it gave me, it, you know, it changed my life, right? right. It established a foundation, you know from private E1 to retired two-star, which is, you know, there's like, I'm like a unicorn. You're super, super unicorn. Yeah, you're, there's you're like, like two of them. Uber corn. Yeah. Something. I don't know what that is. And I, yeah. you throw warrant officer in the middle of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but I think, you know, I look back on my military service with, with gratefulness, right? Yeah. I mean, there was certainly sacrifice and some really tough times, but that's part of it. And so instead of being, you know, you know, sad that I'm not, there anymore. I haven't regretted a day since I got out of leaving yeah. the military. I haven't. I, but I'm at the same time, I'm extremely grateful. Grateful for the opportunities. I had to work for them, right? I went to school at night. I had to, you know, um, and education really was the platform for me, you know, to, to continue to advance. That's why, you know, with this foundation, I there's a personal experience that motivates me. Um, when I talk to the kids, I share my story. Hey, look, here's where I was at. Right. I mean, statistically, you're you're in an offset of an anomaly. Of an yeah, anomaly. I mean, you know, I you know, mm. it should have never ended up. And you know, there's some luck in there. You know, in in full transparency. But so I think you know, having that job satisfaction, having an understanding that where you mm-hmm. when you leave the service. I mean that you're you're closing that chapter of your life. That doesn't mean you're forgetting about it, but you're you know for the most part, it's very rare to go back. Well, I I think a lot of it for me, I think of life as like uh, not to be too philosophical or dramatic, but life is like a river, and I you know I, I still love to run rivers, so I, it, it makes me <laughs> you know happy to think about things like like this in this circumstance, which is presented with the opportunity to run, let's say, a long, complex river. You're running the river. You're in it at the yeah. beginning. You take out at the end. Yeah. And you can't go back because it's, it, it, yeah. especially with the current and whitewater and, and yeah. you know, a manual You boat, can't go you upstream. You can't go upstream. You're facing in one direction. You're navigating the river, and you're not thinking about how great the previous section of river was and how, yeah. how the, the fishing was better, the rapids were better, this. No, you're thinking about, I can't wait what's around the corner in the next section of this because exactly. I've never seen it before. And you're concentrated on that. Like, you can't go back. So why? Why like we can? Why waste your time? Why waste your energy on something that you, it's not going to change? In, in the, uh, in, in the uh, iconic words of my father, he said, you're, you're, your, your windshield is this big, your rearview mirror is this big. Yeah. And that's for a reason. That's a really good analogy. And I, I find myself wanting to, I don't, I don't like lecturing anyone. That's not, that's not my thing. Like I, I actually don't appreciate it when people lecture me either. So as you can imagine, I was a leadership challenge. And, um, shocking. Shocking, shocking. <laughs> but I, I want to have this conversation with, um, the the community in a way that's that that it's really incredible that you 
you got an opportunity to serve in a special operations unit or in a combat arms unit or in any form of service. Any form of service. Yeah. But the color of your hat is not your identity. No. And when people say I was a Green Beret, like it just kind of like grinds me a little bit sometimes. I'm like, man, you weren't. You were never a fucking color on a hat. And that's part of the problem. You were, you know, a, a highly specialized special operations soldier in a time of war. And I understand it's, it's a shorthand uh, definition so people, civilians will understand. But it's also become such an entrenched part of their identity. Yeah. People have a hard time transitioning out and then assuming control or command of their, of their next assignment because they're always thinking about their previous one. It's like, I was a green hat. That's great. And I'm, I'm only speaking about the, uh, the, you know, but it, it could be the sand color hat now, right? It's yeah. Like, well, the Rangers gave up their black beret. Yeah, you or know. it's coming out of the unit. Yeah. Like there, it's such a commitment to a person's all, like you have to commit everything. You have to commit a hundred percent. And your family. And your family. So I understand why people are having a, a, yeah. a, a, a existential crisis as they start to transition out. But I think part of that transition, it, 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 one, it has to start with a conversation with, with us, not just you and I, but us yeah. as a community. As a Two, community. I yeah. think, I honestly think that there needs to be a more involved process from counseling with, especially with the special operations community. It's, it's, and I'm not trying to exclude other people. It's just, it, it's such a commitment and it's a commitment to your identity, your soul. Yeah. You like. Just to get there. Just to right? get there. It's everything. And then yeah. the expectation is guys are just going to like get out, go be a success. But I think there's actually a, a lot more going on upstairs. Well, I think it's in two, two points here. One, I think it's important that if you can't get out on your own terms, like I, you know, I, there was another job for me, right? My, sure. my boss said, Hey, I want you to go over and be the chief of staff. It's so come. It was a lateral move, but mm -hmm. he said, that was the plan. And you know, my thing was, Hey, if you need me to do it, I'll do it. Right. If you're asking me, I prefer to get out. So there's, so I, I left and my wife thought, you know, I'm going to go buy a Ferrari or something. I don't know. <laughs> you, you know, no, uh, God, no. I'm, my wife is like the worst CFO ever. <laughs> so, but the other thing I think is, you know, I, I, and I used to counsel and mentor, you know, the folks that worked with me and for me about this. I said, when they talk about getting out and making that life decision on when, right? Yeah. Whether it's at the, a retirement or they're at the end of their active duty service obligation. I said, look, here's the deal. The Army, and you can insert Marine, sure. Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, whatever. Um, ultimately, they're going to cheat on you. They're going to kick you to the curb for a newer, younger model. <laughs> and, you know, you've heard that thing. It's like your hand in a bucket of water. You're in there. You're agitating the water. Once you pull your hand out the bucket, never knew you were there. Yeah. Well, the system has to be that way, right. that they move on. But your family is going to be there forever, right? Your family, and I think, you know, it's easy to say this. It's tougher to live it. Yeah. But... The most important, we talked about this, right? You talked, we, we had a conversation in Arizona about giving back and raising your kids. And 
and my wife was an Air Force intelligence officer. You know, I flew with the Air Force for four years, 92 to 96 at Air AFSOC down at Hurlburt. And, you know, my wife was my squadron intelligence officer. And, you know, we got married. I was in the Army. She was in the Air Force. And she made a decision to get out of the Air Force, and she got pregnant with our second <clears throat> son. And she was an extremely talented officer. And she hates it when I talk about her, even in flattering terms like right. this, which I, you know, I have nothing but the most respect for her. But she s- said to me, look, I'm, you know, I'm not a good mother. Our kid's spending too much time in daycare. And I'm not a good officer because when they get sick, I got to leave. I yeah, got to go. Right. And she said, I have to be good at something. And it's more important to be a good mother. I mean, I remember that. And, and I've never forgotten that. So, you know, I respect the sacrifice that she made professionally, personally, to raise our kid. And I got three great kids. And the only thing they got from me was leaving a toilet seat up and not making their bed. <laughs> I mean, everything else they got from their mother. Everything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, they're great kids. They've done yeah. great in life. And the most important thing is they're good people. Yeah. So the in this next chapter, invest in your family, right? Yeah. There's going to be a transitional time. You're going to be mm-hmm. home a lot. You're going to be probably some uncertainty as you make this transition, right? A buddy of mine, a three-star SEAL, is retiring. He just They stayed at our house for the last week. He drove out with his wife today. And I could see him going through that. Like, he doesn't know what's next, right? He doesn't know. He's got some lines in the water, and he'll be fine. And I've told him that. But for the first time in your life, you're like, wow. Yeah. It's a change. I said, expect it, but invest in your family. It'll be fine. And invest in your family. Spend time with your family. Understand that uncertainty is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Understand that there's an adjustment, both between you and your spouse, but... I, you know, I mean, I love the time with my family. We go fly up and see our kids. I got two of them up in Madison, Wisconsin, working for a medical software company up there. I got one in Georgia. We take family trips every year. We went to Yosemite last year. We're going to Alaska this year. So, you know, that's my investment. I think that's really good advice. I think, well, one, you know, as I kind of like progress my way out of, of, of government service. Like I, I wrote an operations order. Like that's what I did. I had to like, what's my mission. Right. Yeah. What, when, where, why I had to write it. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, which I mean, it was a condensed version, but I had to write it. Which yeah. was, I will transition from military service and live a happy and fulfilling life. That was it. Okay. And okay. Plug in. That's commander's intent. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, were, were there five W's there? No, but it, it gave me the construct, which is, now, what is happiness? What is fulfillment? And these are more abstract and philosophical perspectives. Yeah, 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 but yeah. anything that distracts me from the, the the success criteria, because I mean, obviously, I had a whole I had, I had a whole op order. Actually, I still have it somewhere. And I had thousands and thousands of reps of you know planning, or thousands of reps in planning, and 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 trying to construct things around execution. But my own life around. You know, how do you, what, what I try to tell people is like, be your own senior NCO. And that probably counts for officers as well, because I know that a good senior you. NCO, a good ops guy will keep you fucking straight. Yeah. And keep you focused on the mission, your success criteria will keep everything like, hey, diddle, diddle, everybody down the middle will keep yeah. accountability. Keeps you on asthma. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of us, I think they see this as an opportunity to 
free themselves from the military, but then they they leave some of the most important lessons learned. I, I, I've told this to people all the time where I'm like, if military guys would just take PLDC, which is, you know, you yeah, yeah, that. yeah. If they would just take Platoon PLDC. Leader Development Course, or <laughs> yeah. Primary Leader Primary Leadership course, Development course. course. If they just yeah. took PLDC and ran their life around the fucking lessons that they learned in PLDC. You don't have to, Yeah. You, we don't have to talk about, you know, CAS Cube or wh whichever course you guys went to or getting your MBA. If you just used your skills that junior NCOs learn around accountability, duty, selfless service, around reinforcing yes. army values and around these constructs, which I think is funny because you know, reading, um, what was it Jocko's book? Um, uh, extreme ownership. Yeah, extreme ownership. It's yeah. PLDC. Yeah, it's what it, it is. is. Yeah, it's a seal version. <laughs> it's yeah. a seal version, and I'm yeah, like, it is, guys. This was like what you learned when you were in E4. So because it's put out by uh, in, in, a, in a deeper voice with you know a guy that was in command in Fallujah, you're yeah. going to take it on in a, in, with a more weight, significance, and gravity in your life than what you went through in BNOC, which is, you know, whatever yeah, it next is. Next step right? up, yeah. So I think it's interesting how easy some of this can be because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Honestly, I have to kind of like go back and figure out like, oh, well, these are the things I learned. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can apply these things to my life in the future. I'm not complex enough to also throw a bunch of chaos in my life that I can't handle. We talked about it last night keeping things really simple. Yeah. Like keep it simple, stupid, kiss focus. principle, focus, triage your time. Like I can't do a lot of shit because honestly I don't have the, the range that yeah, yeah. what I would say is intellectual range. Well, to, and you're all in, right? You, you're, in. you're not a multitasker. You are focused on a problem. I, yeah, you know, it's interesting. So two comments, one, I've been out for, you know, like I said, six, you know, years, six right? years closing, you know, and, you know, you always, you know, everything that we've learned through PLDC and all the other leadership things, we sort of, we, I think I, well, I'm not want to say we, I want to say me. I was like, well, what is my value proposition coming out in the right. leadership thing? This is like intuitive stuff. What I've learned is... It's intuitive to us. It's intuitive to those that went through PLDC or or the similar leadership courses. Yeah, yeah. It is extremely rare in the civilian world. Like basic stuff like walking the floor, right? Like we were hanging around down there this morning. Oh, hey, what's happening with you? I saw this. You're not feeling well today. Those kind of conversations um, – some leaders they have, but they don't necessarily happen. And you know, I I think one uh, you have more value than you think you have. It's intangible. It's hard to quantify in a lot of ways, right? Leadership. If you could measure leadership, that'd be awesome. But you can't. And it's it's complex and simple at the same time. But I think that you know you you bring a lot to the table when you make that transition because of what you learned and. And those, that's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful, mm -hmm. right? Because I've been, at, you know, in hard leadership positions. I've had to make extremely 
tough calls that really tore me apart personally. Um, but you got to make them, right? You're the leader. And so I think those things that you learn, those basic tenets, I never, I remember as a young officer and a young NCO, you know, they'd say, you know, integrity and, sorry about up at the table, it's integrity okay. and all those kind of things. I'd be like, I want something tangible. Give me a, a TTP. Give me a technique yeah, or a tactic. Yeah. Yeah. But it, the, the older I got, really those foundational things are what's most important because mm -hmm. the tactics and techniques and procedures will change. You can change them like you're right. underwear. When you're, when I'm the, when I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm leading a, uh, okay, you started out in Black Rifle Coffee, grinding your coffee in a garage, right? Okay. And now you got this huge business geographically dispersed. You've got to influence the culture here, but now it's harder. Because you can't directly influence everybody. You can't touch everybody every day. So your techniques change, right? Your techniques change on how you do that. Um, but it's, it's very similar. And I've thought about it this, you know, it's very similar to the progression from, you know, what I would say is tactician to uh, command. Strategy. Right? Yeah, command, yeah. strategy. And, you know, yes, you're going to start and you're going to be right rifleman snuffy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Eventually, you know, as you move through, you know, team leader, squad leader, and as you start to grow in your command authority and responsibility, you, you can't do everything. Like, it's impossible. No, One, you can't. You need a sizable force. Yeah, yeah, you would be hyper ineffective. It yeah. wouldn't be scalable. You would be combat ineffective at the end yes. of the day. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, looking back, you can say, okay, well, delegation Right. So yeah. how do I, you know, train, assist and advise? How do I delegate? And then how do I yeah. like how do I responsibly have accountability? And the other piece I think is hard, especially for soft guys, is perfection is the enemy of progress at times. Yeah, yeah. And, Perfect the enemy of good enough. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent. Said that many times. You know, analysis, yeah, and there's all these like buzzwords yeah. like analysis and equals paralysis, paralysis by analysis. Yeah, paralysis yeah, by yeah, analysis. Yeah. And one of the things, like, because coupling both sides from, like, what I would say is the special operations world, you know, the CIA, and then, you know, running what I would say is, you know, a, a hyper-effective, you know, indige operation, is there's also what I called indige good enough. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which yeah. is... I completely These guys understand. are never going to yeah. be at a full-scope capability from a selection criteria that maybe CAG would have... Because we have a limited pool of people yes. with a lower index of education, a totally different culture and responsibility as far as the way that they grew up, like how mm -hmm. they interface with problems. Like there's there's a litany of different issues that go into this. You're going to work as hard as you can to get them as proficient as they can be on target. But there's a point in which there's a there's a there's a diminishing returns, yes. which is if you're always searching for the yeah. last five percent, you'll never get there. No, I agree. You'll spend ninety percent on that five percent efficiency versus like and you'll, gotta, lose. Yeah. you'll and lose. You'll lose. You'll lose. I think, but when we talk about that, and yeah, and that's a great what a great experience. So working with other cultures, right? That's a completely different chapter in leadership uh, that I don't know, right? I'm a pilot, so I or you know, so I didn't really deal with that, but. Those foundational elements of integrity, you know, and, I, and I'm not, it's character traits, but setting the example, walking the line, those foundational elements, right? 
uh, selfless service, those stay constant, right? When you, you know, they stay constant. The techniques change, whether it, you're dealing with indige, you're dealing at a strategic level now, you know, wrestling with culture of a multi-tier bureaucratic organization like mm-hmm. Black Rifle. But the underlying precepts, the foundational principles of leadership and character, that's when I say it's simple and complex. The simple part is that as long as you adhere to those, you're going to be okay. You're going to struggle. You're going to learn lessons. You're going to learn hard lessons. But the fact is, if you stay true to those things, you're true to yourself, you're, you're, you know, your people can trust you. may not like you at times, right? And likership is, is to me, is a, a fool's errand. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know but, though, but when they trust you and they know, okay, I can trust Evan. I trust Evan Hafer, right? You trust Clay Hupmacher. When I tell you something... It's what's going to happen, and and you can take me at my word. Um, so those kind of fundamental things that, that get reinforced from E1 to O10, mm-hmm. um, I think will serve you well for the rest of your life. And that I believe that corporate America is starving for those kind of leaders. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they don't even realize it in a lot of cases. I was working with a venture capital firm that's investing in deep tech. And I'm like, what are we doing with these young founders that are, you know, develop some gizmo or some high tech thing? How are we bringing them from the journey of the tech side to the leadership side? I said, that's where you make your investment, right? Well, do you think, I guess my question is, it's, it's, it's a statement and a question, which is like, I have my beliefs around leadership, which I think is, one of the greatest benefits that we collectively have had an extreme amount of exposure to, which is leadership, leadership, leadership. Good and bad. Good and bad. Correct. Because we have formal instruction. We have templated examples. We have a heritage around what is effective leadership. So like it's an institution that's built and quite literally would not succeed without instituting some form of leadership training and indoctrination. It just wouldn't, it would fail. Oh, for it would sure. fail, fall. Yeah. Like, and we have like examples internationally with different forces that continue to fail because they don't understand a yes. principled, uh, uh, philosophically bound, multi-generational yeah. foundation of leadership. Yes. Where... I think that's like one of the one of the the superpowers of military guys that are transitioning. It's like they have this experience, yeah. and they have this templated example, and it's tangible, and it's something that they can utilize within any and all of their skills, their techniques, and their tactics as they adapt and they move into the professional world. <laughs> they can use it. <laughs> they can say. I've seen great leaders. I know who they are. I've seen bad leaders. I yes. know who they are. Which are more, just as important as good leaders. More importantly, in I know what it is. In your development. I don't think, because, you know, Stanford's not teaching a litany of courses on leadership and how no. important it is in, yeah. in business. They're teaching business, like blocking and tackling, yes. techniques and tactics. P&L. Yeah. Yes. 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 So, Interesting. And I would ask you and you and and to your listeners out here, you know, 
what percentage of leaders that you've worked for would you say were highly proficient and ones you wanted to emulate? Mm. And then you, you got that group, you got that bin, right? Which I would say is 10% or less. That's what me. I would say, yeah. yeah. One, and then 10%. you have a bin of proficient but gaps, Yeah. right? Which I would say, for me, and I'm, you know, I'm spitballing here, but I'd say that's like 40%. Liked them, served with them again, but there was some significant shortcomings there. And then I'd say the bottom 50% are leaders that had, in some cases, fatal flaws, Yeah. right, as a leader. Um, and, you know, that to me gives you it right there, that... That gives you in if you if that was if you had the same experience uh, that I had, that gives you insights to how difficult leadership really is, and how and I believe leadership is a learned skill. Mm-hmm. I did a podcast with Jocko three years ago, yeah. and he asked me that question, and we talked about it because reps and sets matter, right? You have grown. I you know I, we haven't talked about this specifically, but I and intuitively I know this to be a fact. That you know you've you know you've you've grown as a CEO through experience, through lessons learned, good and bad. You know whether it's investing in, and people are like eighty percent of it, yeah. right? Um, but that I think is a, a critical thing. Is you know it's a learned skill, um, but what you bring to the table through your experiences in the military, you know my. You know, listen, I was number one on the crapper detail. I was like uh, Gomer Pyle when he hits the panel and all the <laughs> toilet seat covers go up. You know, I mean, um, I learned, right? Um, and I think those kind of reps and sets serve you well, whether you're in a corporate boardroom, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, okay, you step back and you focus on the strategic things. You don't get wrapped up on the uh, the mouse turds, mm-hmm. right? So... I guess, you know, bringing a full circle for what you said is there's an institutional part of leadership. But if you keep in mind that leadership is a struggle, there's times when I've been a crappy leader. You know, I knew I was out at Hohenfels, snowing in the middle of winter. I was battalion commander, tried to get out around at the end of the night, you know, before, after I, you know, and do my battlefield circulation, checking on the privates, you know, and the soldiers standing guard. Some nights I did it, some nights I didn't. Some nights I succumbed to that warm sleeping bag on that cot in that GP medium, and I like I failed that day. I'd wake up and I was like, "You, you failed. You should have been out there checking on those troops." And, and you know, being honest, I just didn't always do it. Right. Because um, it's hard. It's hard to place other people's welfare above your own routinely. Well, I mean, there's a balance there, but that's part of leadership, in my opinion. Well, I think that's part of differentiating between what you want to do and what what is your duty correct yeah it's it's like yeah what i ought to do whether over what i want to do yeah and that's where you know having what i would say is this this reference point of saying and i, I think it's that the depth and and dexterity to this these experiences of hardship that the military exposes you to saying this is perspective yes uh, it can get much worse yeah, you know, I've I've said this a lot. With, like, you know, we're 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 selling caffeinated brown water. Like, we're not risking life, limb, or eyesight. Like, <laughs> good caffeinated you, brown water. It, it yeah, is it's quality. Yeah, it's quality. But that's one of the reasons why 
uh, you know, I have Washington crossing the Delaware in the con- in, in our conference room, in every conference room we have, which is it provides perspective to hardship. Like we're we're not starving on the yeah. depths of what I would say is psychological, physical, and emotional. With no clear path to victory. With no clear, like, Grinding. can you imagine, like, the the pressure of leadership and command? Oh. Like, I can't imagine. Yeah. Setback after setback after setback. Yeah, I mean, that's Washington to me. Yeah. Like, to me, to me as well, right? It's like he, for me, he's, he is this single hinge pin that held and put this entire thing together. Without him, there's like how important that that's a primary example as to how important real leadership is. Selfless leadership. When they wanted him to be king, yes. right? After they said, hey, we think you should be king, which was normal. I mean, we yeah. can't even imagine that in no. the country today, but back then, everybody else has got a king. Why don't we have Why don't a king? we have one? Washington, yeah. you're the guy. And he said, no. No. Another one of my heroes is Marshall. Yeah. I mean, that guy, he could have been, you know, they asked him, hey, do you want to, you know, are you going to express a preference to go over and lead the invasion mm-hmm. in Normandy? Which was, you know, Eisenhower's place in history books. is, And he, he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to express a press. I'm not going to express a preference. And the president felt it was more important strategically because he held Congress together. He had established this massive industrial base which is a big reason why we prevailed. And, you know, to me, talk about selflessness. Yeah, and it's interesting because Marshall gave such a different perspective to the table when he was discussing specific issues, which, you know, if if you're a student of history and you read the the context and conversations even around the establishment of Israel and and his debate points, even – how contentious that was going to be. Yeah. Uh, he was actually spot on on a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different ways. Well, yeah. you know, it's interesting that two things, the president re- tried to refer to him by his first name. Did mm-hmm. you read yeah, that? Oh yeah. And he said, no, sir, I would prefer to be called general Marshall. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, gutsy move, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but he, you know, he understood, right. His role in the hierarchy, best BMA, best military advice to the president. And he wanted that barrier there. The other thing is when uh, when Truman was making the decision to recognize Israel mm-hmm. in 48, he was secretary of state. He adamantly opposed that. Yep. And I am, you know, I'm a big fan of Israel. I mean, I'm a huge fan yeah, of them. So am I. So am I. I mean, they're, you know, for many reasons, but... You know, they came afterwards. The press said, "Well, are you going to resign?" He said, "No. He's he's the president. He's the commander. I express my opinion. He made the decision. You know, hey, diddle diddle, everybody down the middle now. Right. It's like now it's my decision. Yeah. The guy to me, I take a lot of. I mean, I like Bradley too because I like his demeanor. Yeah. But he wasn't nearly. I don't think the strategic leader that Marshall was or Washington was. I think I think Eisenhower too, from the perspective, yeah. like I think, yeah. you know, the the weight of command, specifically, and like success or fail. I can't imagine being in that situation where, you know, you're staging, getting ready to go into Europe, 
you know, you're getting leather calls and oh god, like, yeah. talk like about rolling the dice, man. Yeah, chain smoking I mean. and drinking gallons of coffee and the amount of stress that, like, I mean, I can't even imagine the 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 war machine and the complexity of communication. I mean, you think about the technology that we've had as oh, far yeah. as like like implementing net call on satcom. Yeah, everybody execute, execute. Oh, it man. wasn't like there that. wasn't like that. You know what I most admired about Eisenhower on D Day? was that he had pre-written, if they failed, he had pre-written yeah. that note and said, we failed, basically. He didn't, it doesn't use the word fail, but it, he accepted full responsibility in advance. Pre, This is the message. If we get pushed off the beaches of Normandy, I own it, which is a tentative leadership that um, I think is lost on a lot of people is ownership. You know, when I do Article 15s on troops, right? Right. I'd call them in. I do two things that I think I call them in beforehand, and I'd say, "Look, I'm not telling you. I'm not trying to get in between you and your lawyer, your JAG lawyer, and all that stuff. But what I'm telling you is, if you did it, and if you're guilty, and I'm not making a predetermination here." But if you own it and accept responsibility for your actions, you're probably not going to get a pass, but it's not going to be nearly as bad as it is if you don't accept responsibility. That's one. Then after the Article 15, right, after I held these uh, individuals accountable, and I apologize if I brought this up on a previous podcast. I may have. But I had a young specialist, and I'll just use his last name, Specialist Kennedy, generator mechanic in my aviation battalion in Germany, 5158. We had a problem with kids going over uh, and smoking dope up in um, the Netherlands, right? Mm -hmm. They could go up there. Yeah, Amsterdam was really where they all flocked to. And he he popped positive on a urinalysis. He was a PFC, an E3. I'm in a tent in Hohenfels, and I had a whole loom. It was court day, right? I mean, I had like a whole bucket of them that I had to, you know, hold accountable here. So I called him in, executed the Article 15, dismissed him, and I did it with every single one. But he's the most notable for my, in my mind. And then I call him back in, and I say, sit down. Okay, I've already held you accountable. You know, don't report, just sit down. Let's talk about what happens now, right? Where do we go from here? I've held you accountable. That part is over. That's in the history books, right? Um, where do we go from here? And this kid, young African-American kid, was crying, sitting on this folding chair in my little field, in front of my field desk in this tent. And he said, hey, I want to make you proud. I want to make it in the Army. And, you know, I want to I be something. I want to overcome this. I said, okay, I'm on board. So I do my little, I'd walk around one day a week. I always block two or three hours just to walk around, never tell anybody where I'm going just walk around, not inspecting, you know, you know, if I saw something particularly egregious, I go tell the XO to go down there and police it up. But I didn't want that. I didn't want the, it, the vibe to be an inspection vibe. It's just checking. Right. So I'd always go by and see this kid, specialist Kennedy in the motor pool. I'm an aviation guy. This is a generator mechanic, right? I mean, 18 months later, I changed out of command. Kennedy, who was, I busted to private was a specialist, soldier of the quarter, and I pres- I asked him to present the roses to my wife as we went out, right? 
I had lots of heartbreaks. I had lots of kids that were this close and they made a bad call. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Right. You know, um, but those nuggets, those specialist Kennedys where maybe I had an impact on him and I don't know where Kennedy is today. I wish I did. Mm -hmm. Um, but he picked himself up by his bootstraps. He dusted himself off. And when I saw him give my wife her red roses after our two years in command and 5158, I mean, to me, that was something I'll never forget. Not because of what I did, but because of what he did. All I did was give him the opportunity and the encouragement to go on. That's leadership. Those are the things you don't forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it is interesting because that's what people respect. It's like yeah. courage hard work, discipline, you know, and these are the things I think at times they're almost under attack from a, a, a country and culture. Yeah. They're, they're, it's got to be a meritocracy. Yeah. It has to be a meritocracy. I mean, I think, you know, in a meritocracy, when you can invest in diversity by absolutely do it, but invest early. But in the end, I mean, you know, it's best athlete. Well, and then to your to your point, it's you know selection goes on all the time everywhere. And ongoing process. It's an ongoing process, and if people aren't putting in the work, and they could be inferior intellectually, they could be inferior physically. But life change in there, some circumstance, something. They're yeah. they're putting in the work. The work is the real differentiator, like the work. Yes. And like when you have people that are naturally gifted, which by the way is a smaller percentage and it's much smaller than what people I think realize. Yes. Like they it's the people that have the discipline and the drive to drive through their um, decreased optimization both physically and intellectually. It's the drive that continues yes. to Persistence over talent. Yes, absolutely. No, I agree with that. I think you'd see the most successful athletes are those that are persistent and they train. I was watching on the plane, I was watching a, uh, a documentary on the flight over here about, you know, on uh, Brady, Tom mm-hmm. Brady. Yeah. And the, the theme throughout is high school coaches were interviewed, his college coaches were interviewed, his friends were interviewed, was his commitment to excellence. Mm-hmm. Good and bad, you know, and whether you like Tom Brady or not, um, the fact is what separated him, you know, from his peers was his commitment to grinding every single day to a pursuit of excellence, to be a learning individual that continues his commitment to growth. Well, I think that that's something that, that, not only people underestimate, but people don't encourage and then pour fuel into it, which is positive fuel. Right? Yeah, 100%. And that's, to me, okay, it doesn't it may not immediately feed the quarterly P&L, but you're building tomorrow's team. You're changing mm-hmm. their – it's a, such a win-win, Yeah. right? You're building your team. Like when I took over the SOWF, the Special Ops Warrior Foundation, I instituted – we had four strategic objectives, right? Student success, number one, what mm-hmm. it should be. Support to wounded, ill, injured, number two. Number three, we got to raise money, you know. Yeah. But number four was professionalizing the workforce, investing in the team. 
and taken a long-term view. Okay, I got this brand new person. I recognize potential here. How can we put that individual in positions where they continue to grow and take on positions of greater responsibility and authority? Because you're, you're now what you're doing is you're investing in the future, which may not ever manifest itself on my watch. Mm-hmm. But you're setting the organization up for success over the long term. And professional development of your folks, even though it costs you money in the short term, like, you know, I got one of our directors that's her husband, you know, she's wife of a soldier, first sergeant. She wants to do her PhD. I'm like, okay, we'll help with that. You know, and she's, she runs our, she leads our team that deals with our families, you know, on how to, you know, it's more of a, I don't, I'm not sure the exact terminology of her degree, but I'm like, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. It's good for us. You invest in that. Yeah. So unpack uh, f- for the audience, like SOWF, like the mission, like mm-hmm. the drive behind it, you know, size and scope, kind of the, the sure. responsibility. So the Special Ops Warrior Founding Foundation, SOWF, um, it's for, it, April 24th, it'll be 44 years old. It was established in the aftermath of the failed attempt to rescue 52 American hostages being held in Tehran, which, as many of our listeners know, ended horribly, tragically in the desert at a desert refueling site uh, where we lost eight Americans, three Marines and five airmen. Um, Two aircraft collided on the ground. And the foundation was started by the other members of that hostage rescue task force. They made a commitment before they even redeployed. They were on a small island, Masira, off the coast of Oman. And they said, we're going to take care of those kids. And it was essentially a pass the hat. Mm-hmm. And since that time, and we've that promise made, promise kept to those 17 kids. Today we have over 1,100 kids. You go to our website, the number changes daily. The youngest one from that CV-22 crash that uh, just happened November 29th is seven weeks old. So, and that's the best way I'll I'll talk about that that child, um, young man. He will be with us potentially till 2046 when he graduates college, assuming he goes to a four-year degree. He may not. Right. But starting with preschool, starting, and then followed by unlimited tutoring from preschool all the way through college private school tuition assistance. About 40% of our families, 35 to 40%, already had their kids in private school. We felt it was important that we helped them with that. We run college prep courses for high school students at University of Tampa. They donate dorms. They live in the dorms at University of Tampa. They eat in the dining facility. We spend a week with them. We don't tell them what to, you know, we don't say, hey, we want you to get a four-year degree. We want you to make an informed decision on what you do with your future. We have firefighters. We have EMS people. We have linesmen that are doing essential jobs that our country needs. Mm-hmm. And we have kids in Ivies and everything in between. We spend a week with them. The best part, the mentors for that are kids that have graduated from our program and volunteer to give back that have lost a parent. Mm-hmm. And they live with them in the dorms. Now wow. it's selfless service, yeah. I'm sure. But, and then we, we fund their college visits for them and a guardian. We fund all their application fees. We outfit them with computers, printers, and then we completely fund their post-secondary education, not just books and tuition, 
not just lodging, but everything. Their travel back home on breaks, everything. We fund internships. We fund study abroad. And the best part, which and uh, the woman I mentioned with the Ph.D. runs this personally, Barbara Secor. I'll give her props here. Um, we, she runs our – she's the director, but she also personally oversees our Children with Disabilities program. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you'll allow me, I got a quick vignette. We had a young man. His dad was a ranger in 2nd Ranger Battalion, was shot and killed in Afghanistan. He was in elementary school, maybe just starting elementary school. The mother never got over it. He came home from elementary school. She was in an alcohol-induced coma in the hallway. He found her, and she passed away. So she, so he, this young man now is getting punted between grand, and they're doing their best, right? Mm-hmm. Extended family, grandparents on both sides. He's back in, but he's still in elementary school. He's breaking into houses. I mean, he's on a downward trajectory here. So our team worked with the grandparents. And they wanted him to go into a ranch for troubled youth in South Carolina. So we funded that. I think it was an eight as sixteen week initial thing. But they they said, look, he needs to stay longer. So we funded eighteen months and this is a resident thing for him. He graduated two years ago last December, wrote us a note. He's just now in middle school, and he basically said you saved my life and he but he knew he needed structure so now we're funding him uh at a at a resident uh military school in south carolina and his choice and his mm-hmm. par- obviously his parents yeah. are the ultimate or his grandparents but to me that's that may not fit the traditional definition of a disability but for us it 100 percent fits right father service rug pulled out underneath for him we got other cases McClintock family, who yeah. you know, um, son with um, autism, we're with them every step of the way. So, and there's no cap on funding for them, mm-hmm. whatever they need. So, to me, uh, that's our mission. And the, the final thing we do with those kids is we have a college to career transition course, where they they get mentored from some people that support us, send in their eight senior HR people to do mock interviews with them, network, help them set up their LinkedIn accounts, write their resumes. But it's a lifelong commitment for us. We never lose touch with those kids. They never go for another day for the rest of their life without a birthday card from us. I personally write a note to every kid that uh, in college that um, or technical school that gets a GPA of over 3.5. And I mean, I love doing it. I hate it when I get that list because <laughs> that's carpal tunnel syndrome. But we want to encourage them yeah. to continue. Um, and we spend 90 cents of every dollar goes to programs, right? We're, we're 16 people total. We're going to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're committed. And uh, that's the program. And I think we're making our country better, frankly. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you know, you know, I, I don't know if the listeners know, like, we've, we've, We've done a lot with you over the you last. Know, you guys years. have been our most your our most generous donor. Mm. Well, in in honestly, it's something I believe in personally. I, I truly believe in it because I think about it from a a responsibility to the community in the context of what what would I want, right? Yes, so if, exactly. If, if if the dice had rolled a different direction for me in a number of different ways in a number of different environments. Your two I, daughters would be, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 
you know, I think about it from the context of if there was an organization helping my family, how would they be able to help in what, which way? Yes. And, you know, regardless of my, my pre-existing or my, my bias towards what I would say is some of the education system and their, you know, their, their Rightfully so. And that's why we don't push them, right? We don't yeah. push them. We don't try to steer them. Well, and it's the same way. Like my girls, you know, as a father, and obviously as you sit here as a father, like you just love your kids. You yeah. want the best for them. You want them yeah. to be happy, fulfilled. You want them to, you want them to exceed their own internal expectations as far as their capabilities as people. Uh, but I don't care. I don't care if they get PhDs. I don't care if they're going to go on. I don't care. I don't I, care. You either. know what I care? I care. Are they good people? Are yes. they meeting or exceeding their individual, professional, and personal expectations? Like, that's what I care about. And that means you have to find a fulfilling profession that yes. provides lifetime value to both you and what I would say is, like, I think uh, community service, the not good. from a community service perspective, like, you know, juvenile delinquency, but how are you giving back to your community? And, I, you know, I, I, I just looked at it very simply, right, where, you know, I I, I think every one of the friends that I've, I've, I've known, I, I can't think of one that wasn't a father, I really can't. Yeah. I can't think of one guy that wasn't a father, and most of these guys were fathers several times over. Yes. You know, like they had multiple children. And then when you're thinking about the responsibility, the weight of raising your children alone as a parent, as a mother, as a father in some circumstances, depending on, you know, like Joe Kent is a good example, yes. and Shannon Kent. Yeah. It, it's not exclusively gender specifically, no. you know, t towards 100%. male. Um, now you have the weight and responsibility of raising your children without a parent. You have the financial responsibility, which, by the way, you know, uh, SGLI is not going to cover. <laughs> no, no. It, 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 it's enough to, to start the momentum of the life in a direction without the parent but it will never be enough to replace it because it's not enough like period it doesn't it doesn't really matter the amount uh, it could be a hundred million dollars it's still not going to replace a father or a mother in no. some certain circumstances but this allows a parent to parent and really i, I think uh, rest easier at night knowing like their education is paid for paid for it takes a rock out of their rucksack. And the other thing is there's a little, the thought, you know, the reason we, we call it um, cradle to career, mm -hmm. right? So our program started at age two. If kids, and there's, because there's some preschools that will allow children at age two if they're potty trained to go yeah. in there. It starts there and it ends post-secondary. And it's, you know, and there's, we proactively reach out. So if something had happened to you, we reach out to your family and say, Fill out this contact sheet. Mm -hmm. I write. I sign the letter. I write them a note. That's it. There is no other applications. It's not year to year. Even on accounting purposes, we say, okay, hey, for kids, we've made a commitment to them. We carry it as an obligation, even on accounting speak, mm -hmm. to get them all the way through post-secondary education. And that enduring commitment over their academic journey, in, includes technical school, 
you think about these kids. They've been through a traumatic experience, right? They've been, uh, a lot of them or most of them are in single parent homes. I mean, there's some risk here, mm-hmm. right? But our kids, they, our number of high school kids that pursue post-secondary education and that graduate on time from their post-secondary exceeds the national average by greater than some young years, it's up to 30%. The one last thing I'd like to point out is, you know, we got three eligibility groups, right? We've got children of fallen special ops personnel that die in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. So suicide, accidents, training accidents, combat, we have that, right? In 2020, we expanded it to cover the children of all Medal of Honor recipients, living right. and deceased, right? So we cover their kids. In 2022, I was at... Uh, now Fort Liberty, Fort Bragg for an event, and a soldier that I had met, special ops soldier, his wife had passed for can- due to cancer, left behind two sons and a daughter. So I threw a suit in my bag and went over. I didn't know him exceptionally well, but mm-hmm. I've gotten to know him much better since. Um, but I wanted to pay my respect. So I, I busted out of the event that I was at, and I sat there in the church listening to him eulogize his, his wife and and, uh, and I said, you know, nobody, there's no government program for sure. I'm, I mean, there are other organizations that help families in this. But spouses don't have the same entitlements that you and I have if something happens to us, right? Mm-hmm. But it's certainly true in my case is my spouse served. She gave up her career. She stayed home. She raised our kids. She served. She supported me as a commander's wife, all of those things over the years. So in 2022, we expanded the eligibility for active duty special ops that lose a non-serving spouse, non-military spouse. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say non-serving, non-military. We've picked up 20, and we're making it retroactive to September 1st, 2018, the first mm-hmm. day I took the foundation. Uh, the board was unanimous, and we've already brought in 25 families from that, and it's just been a little over a year. So those are the three groups, right? And I think we appropriately recognize and honor the service and the impact that those spouses have in the life of soldier, sailor, airmen, and Marines, right? So that's our three things. And our core values are integrity, stewardship, compassion, and commitment. And we live them every day. They're not just words. That's how we make decisions. That's how we plan. That's how we execute. Yeah. You said something to me uh, downstairs, you said it last night too, which was you went from 80 to you almost doubled. Yes. And most of that is a direct outcome of suicide. Uh, I don't know if I would say most of that. So, well, let me clarify. So in 2022, we Mm -hmm. added 88 kids to our roles, right? Mm -hmm. In 2023... Was 151, double. Mm. Um, a significant portion of those are suicides. Most recently, we had a Marine Corps Master Sergeant Silver Star recipient. He got out and he retired in 2020. He took his own life in December of 2023. Left behind, I believe, uh, three children, if I remember right. Mm. Um, and we looked at the met, you know, the documentation from the VA is 100% disabled uh, with PTSD and TBI. 
Um, so we, you know, if we can tie it back, and the goal is not to rule people out. Mm. Uh, it's clearly that was a result of his service in the military. Right. Um, so we picked him up. We just he did you know he, last month he passed away, and I signed a letter a few weeks ago. I signed a letter in December um, to cover his kids, and so suicide is a real issue, right? Especially for those that get out. Um, Mike Day, mm-hmm. SEAL. Yep. Covered his kids. We had a ranger. Um, and I'm blanking on the name, lost a limb, uh, took his own life a couple years ago. Um, and so if we can tie it, and it's, and frankly, I can't remember any that we really haven't. Right. Um, that were career soft or, you know, um, that's what we should be doing, right? Because it is invisible wounds. I think there's a growing understanding, and people get frustrated, like, why aren't we doing more? What I would say is, look, we should always do more. Right, Gary Sinise, in as a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. says um, we can never do enough, but we can always do more. And um, I agree with that. But it's not because people don't want to fix this problem, right? It's just a vexing problem. There's, it's very difficult. There's different causes. There's PT. There's TBI. There's PTSD. There's there's pre-existing. You know, yes, there's there's pre there's also there's, acute things, right? Yeah. You know, you don't make a promotion, you get your wife leaves you or your husband leaves you, um, and we're seeing that we got a number of those family spouses, non-military spouses, a lot of suicides in there, mm-hmm. not the overwhelming number, mainly cancer for them, but mm-hmm. a lot of so. I mean, com, you know, I say just be. You know, understand that there are good people out there that are really trying to get after this, both in the government and uh, and outside with these benevolent organizations. And I and I and believe me, my you know, and I my father committed suicide. Mm. Okay, I was a battalion commander, or I was a major, I guess, um, and uh, took his own life. And uh, my stepfather uh, passed away when I was battalion commander. That's why I was confused. I mean, it was horrible, right? Um, and frankly, I think, you know, uh, the, the wreckage behind oh, that family is just, I mean, I, you know, if I could say anything, and I, as a, as a you know, my father, you know, I had uh, five, siblings, five of us, four siblings. Look, I mean, uh, I had to go clean up the house. I mm-hmm. had to go, you know, take care of it. My sister was the executor. But you're leaving, you know, you're you're picking a final, uh, a permanent solution to a temporary problem, right? I mean, that's what, once you once you take that act. I mean, because we all have bad days. Yeah, we all have bad periods, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, yeah, only speaking from the the community and interface like the accelerants to this you know are physical injury right so you know obviously you have a physical injury you're in acute pain and then you add alcohol and some type of uh drug in there depending on whichever it is pouring gas and now yeah so now you have what could be just something that's smoldering that would take basically a a wet napkin to put out like quite literally and then now you're adding an accelerant to it. Yes. You're pouring gas on on this, and you're dealing like, especially a lot of us. I think 
we, we don't quite understand the second and third order effects of the the professional lives that we've we've lived. I mean, Matt and I've talked about this a lot. Where uh, you know he's talked about it. Where he's he had a brain scan not too long ago, and his short term memory is just really bad. Yeah. Well, well, he was a you know he was a master breacher. Like he was doing a ton of interior 100%. breaching, right? And so it's couldn't. It doesn't necessarily just exist in combat injury, like no, it yeah, doesn't. Hard landings on jumps. Yeah, yeah I was attack yeah. helicopter pod. I had a thirty millimeter cannon right next to my, you know, right, right below me shooting. You know, I mean, explosions. Yeah. Yeah, it could be, you know, hard landings, and you know, it's 100%. any and all things. I have a shoulder problem. Not from anything combat related. It's from a dropping a log on my shoulder during SFAS, where I really couldn't even use my my right hand very well. I had to like pull my ruck on with my left hand, mm. and it's still a problem today. <laughs> yeah, I that got a was right. 20, I got a right shoulder myself four years ago, and it was like a log from log PT. As it's like, as iconic as it is, like it dropped down on my shoulder. And it crushed that 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 joint got, on yeah. the top between my collarbone where it places, and I've got a bunch of calcium buildup on there. Still bothers me today. And you know, I've been lucky, and I think so have you, right? We got yeah. all our fingers and toes. We yep. feel pretty fortunate as to where we are as far as as far as we are physically. But you know, rattling around in gun trucks, wearing night vision goggles, even as light as I am, you know, I'm 160 yeah. pounds on a on a on a on a heavy day, right? I hate you just a little bit. <laughs> and I've I've been pretty easy. We were talking about this last night. We were at dinner, and I was talking about how, like, I've always really focused on my diet, focused mm-hmm. on, like, being light compared to, like, strength and weight ratios because I I've, I've felt like it was just a more tactically appropriate place for me to be. Um, whereas like a lot of guys, they weren't right. They're yeah. much bigger. They're harder up. on their bodies. They drank, they drank more. They fought more. They lifted more weight. They put on, you know, they, they're putting all kinds of every steroid available in them, depending yep, on yep. the circumstance and where we were. And, you know, because we we're, we're also dealing in a very finite existence in the sense of you don't really expect yourself to be around very long. <laughs> no, I, thought, I never thought I'd live through it. No. I mean, I did. I thought I'd be dead by 30 for sure. Yeah, I I, yeah. I, I, I was in the same. I, I didn't expect to be, like, I think at 35, I didn't expect to be 40, right? So, or, yeah. you know, 26, I didn't expect to be 30. So now we're waking up, rolling out of bed. You know, we're 40, 50, 60 years old. We've got a lot of hard miles. And a lot of those decisions in the past that we were making that were kind of short-term Coming to fruition now. They're coming to fruition now. And now you add the loss of identity. So physical injury, we'll say a dependency, some type of drug or alcohol dependency, physical injury, drug and alcohol dependency, put a brain injury on top of that from just, we'll call them concussive activities. And if you've got pain, a pre-existing addiction, and then now they have an existential crisis where they're trying to redefine their purpose. There's no question as to, I understand why it's happening now. Like I completely understand why it's happening. The question is, okay, well, we know why. 
Now, how how do you go in and start like right. making the cultural shifts that need to happen? Yeah, and I I think I think there are efforts to do that, right? The the, the factor that you're right, you know that a good portion, right? There's always there's there's always other there's cases. always other cases, right? Like I said, there's mm-hmm. relationships, there's all that. Mm-hmm. But taking your example, um, I think you know there's human dynamics, so. I was at an event two years ago, one of my old uh, former commanders. Um, I was sitting there just like we were last night at dinner. It was a Christmas party. And, you know, I'm chatting with him. And he was optimistic. He was talking about how, you know, and he was he, he was a commander. He, he'd been out for quite a f- few years. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, you got to take care of yourself. And he was in good shape. I mean, relatively good shape. Yeah. I mean... And that was Friday night. Monday, he killed himself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, completely. I mean, I'm talking to him just like I'm talking to you. Mm. Um, I mean, I would have never seen that coming. I never. I mean, I'm. He was optimistic and upbeat. He was committed to you know being the best version of himself, healthy, all the things you talked about, those accelerants mm. that he was keeping him under control. That's the hard part, right? How do you, you triage what you can't see? Mm, yeah. And so, you know, um, I I I think we're are we putting enough effort to it? I don't on it. I don't know. I think we're putting a lot. I don't think we can. Are we putting enough? But on figuring it out, and you know, the hard thing is you don't know how many lives you saved. Um, also, right? I mean, because people yeah. have made a yeah. decision at that yeah. particular time. Um, all I'm saying is I don't think we've solved it. I think we're identifying it. I think, you know, I listened to a pitch from a guy with this company that measures the contraction and expansion of the iris. They started out with pilots in a simulator trying to figure out when they're getting overwhelmed, right? Mm. You start throwing, you know, engine fires and yeah. ground fire and, you know, and I remember that feeling, right? When things are going to hell in a handbasket, my vision just narrowed, right? Like, what do I have to focus on to keep myself alive? Mm-hmm. Radio pin switches down. I don't want to hear any of that crap. Yeah. I just want to maneuver this plane and get us the hell out of there or get us or do what we got to do to support that guy on the ground. But what they said, they found out that, you know, that and you can do it from your phone. And then it feeds in and they are collecting data. On, and they can also track the difference between ADHD and you know and PTSD and TBI, and then how the are they interrelated? Are they well? Like, this they 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 see sp- oh, okay. data that right. shows that how that and I don't I mean I yeah. can't tell you the science behind it, but they also and and it was a startup company and they were yeah. pitching it and they said, hey, the other thing is they can monitor how the treatments are working or not working and effectiveness. Mm. You know, look, it's early stage, right? Will it work? I don't know. But I think the more of those kind of tools you have in the toolbox, and you can do it remotely. We're on the FOB at Bagram or we're in Shank or mm. wherever, Ramadi, and you can self and in it self re, you know, you, you you take a picture, it calibrates on your eye. I'm not pitching that technology. I'm using sure. that as an exemplar that I think there are people that are really focused on this problem um, to try to fix it and through a varying, and that's just one example. Um, 
But who knows? That could be a way. And it, I think you eat that elephant one bite at a time. Mm. There's not going to be a, a silver bullet. No. No, no I think it's, in, be, it, it's an ounces equal pounds thing, right? It's, yes. it's a collective. Uh, 100%. Like incremental gains to like a combined effort. Like it's, and it's across the board, right? It's, it's education on one spectrum. It is. It's, it's health. It's, you know, physical health, it's mental health. It's all these different things. And it's Support like, I think. works everything. Like the, part of the thing is, 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 is within the, the, there are things that are, that are stigmas within the, the, uh, the community, we'll call it too, right? Which is asking for help. Yeah, 100%. So it's, it, it, I, I've had this conversation with lots of people. It's like, it's okay when you're on target, right? Like support, right? I need one. Like we, like there's a million different ways you like need one, support, whatever it is, or like, you're, you're asking for another guy so you can go take a section of a, of a building, right? Right. Like, cause we, you know, as a team, you're like, always take two, never go alone, right? Wait, wait for the transition on the target. So you can like literally you have to go because one guy's going to go left one guy's going to go right. Right. Yeah. Support. It's okay. You don't even bat an eye on it because it's part of the SOP. Yeah. Part of the SOP. Like, Never do it alone. Always ask for support. Unfortunately, it doesn't apply, or it doesn't. That doesn't carry over. Doesn't transcend into this, into this problem set. Which is interesting because I think yeah. that's part of where the the conversation really has to kind of try to transition in the way like the post service transition. And then it's like it's okay. It's okay to ask for support. It's okay to ask like need one. It's okay. There's negative influencing factors that also directly contribute to people not wanting to ask for support, which would be there's also an entire uh, subset of what I would say is is veterans that exploit the system. Yeah, that, there is. That cause a negative narrative around, you know, like part of this whole uh, that I've been exposed to over the last 10 years is there, there are guys that just want to go and hunt and fuck off and then get it paid for from somebody else. Because anywhere you go, by the way, it doesn't really matter where you go and what, what good you try to do. There's always going to be parasitical. And that's what I'm getting to. It's an acceptable percentage of loss based on, Hey, but if we're going to save and we're going to plug in, we know there's going to be a percentage of people that are going to exploit the system for their own direct and personal benefit. Got it. That's okay. It's an acceptable loss. We'll mitigate against it. But at the end of the day, like we, we've got to support and encourage people to reach out and do the right thing for themselves and for their buddies. No, I agree. In fact, there was a, a great example. To, um, General Cody was vice chief of staff of the Army mm-hmm. years ago, right? And I remember that's when they stood up the wound, the, the uh, warrior transit, WTUs yeah. Yeah, yeah. and all yeah, that. Yeah. And there was a lot of malingering going on. Yeah. Well, and I say a lot of malingering. There, there was. was. There was. That, that was like everybody. That was like a run, running joke. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was it like was a like, running joke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, somebody doing light leftover right stretches before a run ends yeah. up and and pulls a hammy and ends up in WTU. Yeah, but you know, and I was one of the critics, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, hey, we're losing combat power. We got malingerers in there, and it just pissed me off. But Cody set me straight. And the way he said it is he said, look, Clay, um, he said, we can approach this WTU thing two ways. We can make the criteria so stringent to get in there that we're going to turn away people that desperately need to be there. But 
And the government, as you know, is not a precision instrument. You know, I tell people, I said, no. it ain't a scalpel. No. It's a chainsaw. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, it's I, a chainsaw. I think about like 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 it as a giant combine on F1. Like exactly. Like, like, yeah, this, if you're looking for up. precision, yeah, yeah, yeah. you this ain't going to get it. Yeah. You ain't going to get it, right? If you get 70% answer, you're in good you, place. Yeah. So he said, we can. so we can approach it that. We want zero malingerers, but what we're going to do is we're going to rule out people that need to be there. Right. Or we can or we can make the aperture wider and bring in people, and we're going to get malingerers. I chose to go with a wider aperture. And when he said that to me, and I you know I want to give him props because it was I mean as I remember that conversation vividly, and I said, okay, I get it, I get it. The other guy I'd like to point out that's made significant, I think, really changed the paradigm. Uh, for sure, the Army, and I believe um, the rest of the services as well, through their example, was General Corelli. Mm. So he was a vice chief. And there was this, you know, the, my dad was in World War II. My dad, came back from the, my dad came back from World War II. My great aunt told me years later, he didn't come outside for the first year he was back. He was a medic in Patton's Third Army. Mm-hmm. He didn't come outside. I mean, he was, he had PTSD, I suspect. Yeah. And, and Audie Murphy used to talk about this. Yeah. Like, but it, there was, it's there not was, new, right? Yeah. It was shell shock, right? There yeah. was no, it's an invisible wound. Nobody wants to talk about it. Corelli, I think, I give him credit, maybe too much, but as a senior leader, he said, hey, look, these, this is real. And he's still, my understanding is, uh, and I don't stay in contact with him, I mean, he was mm. much senior to me, but he's still, uh, my understanding is he's still, supporting causes like that and he changed the paradigm like just because you can't see it, just because it's not a uh, a through and through or a loss of a limb they're wounded right mm. so if you look at it from back where we were to where we're at in my opinion it's undeniable progress soft is baselining people right so when you come into soft you know they're baselining you mm. on cognitive skills so when I was getting out, when I was retiring, they put this skull cap on. I had to do all these memory exercises and all that. I mean, it was like a battery of tests for four hours. And I, you know, at the end of it, the doctor said, and this wasn't VA, this was active, this was at SOCOM Clinic at McDill. He said, our assessment is 70% chance you've suffered some TBI or PTSD. So I, you know, they put that all in my medical records. I go to the, I go to the VA, and I'm sitting there with this psychologist, I guess, who's reviewing the data. And, and she said, "Hey, look, you know, I get this. You probably did, but the fact is, without being baselined, uh, we have to compare right. you against the average male your age." your ethnic background, your race. And if you're below that, then we're, we're going to take it as a cognitive deficit that's a result of service. But you're not. And most soft guys, you know, I may have been up here. Mm. Now I'm here, but the base, the average is here. And I completely got it. Uh, you know, uh, Vice Admiral Tim Szymanski, former deputy commander of SOCOM, very involved in brain health. Uh, in fact, we had a discussion. He was He's an advisor for that company, mm that's doing that uh, I, that I thing. Uh, and we had a discussion recently about it. Um, and he's invested. He was an MMA fighter. 
uh, you know, and he under, you know, and so I'm, you know, he understands that. So I do think when you look at where we were, you know, and I guess you can go back to a certain thing, let's say pre 9-11 and where we are now, certainly recognition and a cultural shift in the military about recognizing that that is a real issue. Yeah. I had a gunner. So we do vehicle interdictions in Iraq. Um, and I may have the, the number wrong, but, you know, there was one crew position, you know, the way our tactics was when we were taking down a vehicle where one door gunner on the lead 60 with a minigun right side was, you know, we're going to, it's gradual escalation of force, standard stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> but a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, AQ cats and ISIS cats chose poorly. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, you start out, you do a burst of minigun across the road in front of the vehicle, get them to stop. And then you, you know, when they don't, then you go into the engine block, which mm-hmm. is generally going to kill everybody in the front seat, just ricochets. Right. Well, this particular soldier, um, NCO, had 79 confirmed kills in like a 45-day rotation. Right. And I just remember, you know, in a, in, you know, the, the, the immediate is direct supervisors, his direct leadership brought him off and put him in like a maintenance platoon. He was mm-hmm. a crew chief. But there were persistent issues. And, but we recognized it, right? Um, we recognized it, one, on his op tempo on that deployment. Um, but they were, you know, some of these were enduring and some of them didn't manifest themselves till later. I don't know, pre-9-11, we would have picked up on that. You right. know, as quickly as we did, and so I think they've the military's done a good job of educating the force, and <clears throat> to a certain extent, removing the stigma, like little things, like we moved our psychologist's office in the one six two to a place where no one in the chain off the compound, where nobody knows, nobody knows, right? So you go see that psychologist. You're not walking by the commander's no. office. Oh, there's Hafer. He's going to see Th- the shrink. Doesn't it seem like a it seems obvious now, right? When you right. see, <laughs> when you, when you, when I hear that, I'm like, of course, like how obvious is that? Like you can't, you can't go yeah. see the psychologist if everybody's going to see. Right. That it's like walking either, a gauntlet through what? the command group to go see this guy, <laughs> yeah, you know? It's like, it's like putting the psychologist in a corner behind a sheet of cheesecloth in the team room. Yeah. Nobody's going to go see him. Nobody. So there's practical things yeah. that you can do to encourage people to do that. What do you think? Like, like, I know what's happening, right? I, I hear the numbers as far as recruiting and that mm-hmm. the recruiting numbers for special operations, just in general. Like, what, what's your general professional opinion associated with why is recruiting struggling so hard to recruit people, and specifically within your subject matter expertise, not conventional military, yeah. but soft? Well, I mean, you know, it's not one factor, right? I mean, yeah. I think I, I, you know, there's an elephant in the room here, but. I do think, you know, when the economy's good, recruiting always suffers, right? Yeah. Like if people can't, you know, there's no interest like self-interest. If you can't, if you can't find a job, okay, right. you're going to deserve. I do think this tilt towards woke yeah. is, you know, I mean, uh, General Milley, you know, I've heard, I'm, you know, I'm out. Even he was a chairman, he would, you know, he would pound the table. You know, we are not woke in those, in private meetings, I know that. But regardless is, the perception is you are, mm-hmm. right? There is, you know, it, ha- it has been a change. Um, I, 
I think, you know, I mean, I'll use myself as a personal example. I have several close friends that are gay, both mm -hmm. men and women, right? Um, when I grew up, gay was like you were put into a bin of a sexual deviant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, I mean I'm, just, I'm just telling yeah. you where I came from. And, you know, that was the way it was. Um, you know, whether you're a child molester, you're gay, you were all sort of put into that bin. Right. Um, and I confess that I was there, right, as a young officer and as a young NCO, then an officer had the same thing. <clears throat> My wife, after she had, she stayed home for 15 years with our kids and then went back to school and taught high school, got her master's, taught high school math actually taught my youngest son. He, she was his teacher. I've always been curious about uh, getting some candid feedback from him on that experience. But I remember we're at a uh, high school football game on a Friday night outside of uh, then Fort Bragg, and we were walking to the snack bar in halftime. And I, one of the color guards, um, you know, the baton twirlers or sure. flag yeah, yeah. or whatever, walked by, and she said, Hello, Mrs. Hupmacher. And I... I walked by and was after she got out of earshot, I saw my wife, go, who is she? And my wife looks at me and she goes, who was he? And I'm like, seriously? And then I asked my sons about it, right? They were all went to that same high yeah. school for at least part of their high school time. And uh, they said, Dad, they're everywhere, right? It's not, it's just, it's not significant. It's not um, central to who they are. It's just the life choice they made. And that conversation you learn from your kids, right, changed my attitude. Um, and, you know, I have, we, I have, like, I don't care. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know that's not consistent with some of the people listening, but for me, I don't care. Now, I think I, like, take them on character, right? Um, I, I don't, like, I look at it this way, which is, like, whatever happens between two consenting adults... Completely. Don't give a shit. Yeah, I don't care if you're, you know, heterosexual in an open relationship or whatever. It's none of people. It's, it's none of our business. business. Like, okay, but when it's non-consenting or when it crosses yeah. the line into minor, I do care. Yeah, and I care I, a lot. Yeah, and, and my yeah, for sure. That's a problem. Yeah, minor. I I don't you know I guess and again you know. Um, I try to stay Switzerland on things, you yeah. know, for the most part publicly. But I, as a parent, I can't, I guess I struggle with the fact that we're even having a conversation about changing a child's gender and the parents aren't in there. To me, that's not, I mean, I can't even believe we're having that It, it doesn't make any sense because it's illogical. It's taking You can't have authority. a driver's license. You can't vote. You, you, can't, you can't vote. Can't, you can't, like, you can't, all you those can't get a job. All those things that we assume... This is ridiculous. Right. It's so if you're like, 18 years old and you make a decision, you want to do that, yeah, then great. Do it. You fall into that bin that you said. You're a consenting adult. Mm. My thing is... When it when it crosses a line, when it, for me, is don't ask for taxpayer to... Don't ask for the taxpayers correct. to pay for it. It's it's not my issue. Like, I, I don't have the issue. I don't care, but I, I, don't, I shouldn't be responsible financially for it, nor should I be responsible for... Uh, Using my two eyes to differentiate that is built on if you're if you're a believer in evolution, we'll call it uh, 
100,000 years of, of, of homo sapien development and differentiation between species and gender, I can do that. So if I misinterpret it, it's actually not my fault. It's based <laughs> on the fact that I have like a pre-existing 100,000 years of genetic evolution yes. that is- You that have is, a pre-existing condition. That is <laughs> identifying somebody. Yeah, yeah. It's And if I can't, that's not my problem. That, that's not my problem. And yeah. more importantly, I don't care. Like, the, out of all the things that I care about in this world, as you know, like, like I, I care very specifically, I, I primarily about three things. Like, you know, I care about my family, my, which is like my kids, my wife. I yeah. care about the company. I care about the community. I care about three things. Yes, you do. I don't really have it. time, <laughs> like, yeah. like to yeah. to like get into the technical specificity yeah. of this or that. And honestly, the debate of where people put their adult genitalia it bores me. It's not interesting in the slightest. I think it's a distraction. I think it's yeah. it's unintellectual. It's just kind of like low IQ hyperbole, which I just refuse to broker in because it's just kind of stupid. Well, you know, and in the military perspective, there's a readiness issue here too, Correct. right? I mean, if you're changing your gender on the military's <laughs> dime, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're not deployable for at least a portion of that well, time. And you know, there's no, I, so again, again it's elective, so it's small. an elective it's so small and it's such a distraction from military readiness, which ultimately is the the primary focus of what we should be yes like but it's it's amplified through it's amplified probably you know beyond the real impact right I yeah mean, and but i think the, but jared the and i pulled the numbers and it was like 12 people yeah it's like a mouse turd in a big it, scheme it's so and, and that's like i refuse to have a dialogue no, or debate around 12 people i don't care like do whatever you want to do like keep your hands in your 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 you know keep what, what I say or, or ultimately is like, I'm accountable and I'm responsible for me and my family, but I'm not going to participate in a ridiculous, unintellectually satisfying, uncurious conversation yeah. around things that don't matter to me. Like this is it right here, right? Like within my reach <laughs> and what I can affect. I've got a very finite amount of time here. I can't have an exchange of oxygen around stupid things. And I just <laughs> fucking feel like, that's well, it's it the is. tyranny of the minority, right? Yeah, so I, yeah. I, I like that term because in today's world through social media and I, yeah. you know, listen, the foundation, we, we don't pay for advertising. So we use social media. You guys yeah, use yeah. it. I mean, but that, the, the negatives of that are that you can have an oversized voice, an amplified voice, mm. which isn't really representative numbers wise. No. Right. And so I think, you know, we'll probably get better at filtering that over time. I mean, um, like, well, I mean, Hey, you're, you're retired to star. What? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like inexplicably the two star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But okay. From, from, from a general retired general, what is, I, I would say, and, and I want to frame this the right way, so this is why I'm not trying to be politically sensitive. I just want to make sure I get the, the, the question correct, which is, what is the responsibility of the United States military? And when I say that, it's like, okay, from strategically... Pretty simple. Yeah. To deter war, and if that doesn't work, to fight and win our nation's wars, period. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and in the interim, in those pre-war years, it's about readiness, which 
serves as a deterrent, right? It's yeah, I agree. But it historically the military has been used almost, I would say, argue as a as a test bed. So uh, I'll use the example of urinalysis, right? Right. Um, I remember when they, we first started doing urinalysis, and nobody was doing it in the civilian world, right? right. Um, and in the military, like you can, you know, mil, you know, civilian world, like I, I don't want to do that. Okay, that's good. In the military, we we don't give a crap. No, they, whether you they, want to do it. They they I just so everybody knows, like they look at your dick. They make sure. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be crass. Yeah, I've they, I've worked. Hey man, I've, yeah. I've 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 had that duty, and you know, dude. We've had some pretty, as a commander, I've seen some pretty ingenious. <laughs> we had a guy with a with a uh, a fake pecker, yeah, and he had a reservoir underneath yeah. his arm. So as he pressed down, it, and it he was... had the tube. <laughs> and I mean, the battalion commander was telling me the story, and I mean, I was seriously. I mean, I actually got to give him a little credit. I mean, he was really trying. He got caught. We got busted, but. Um, you know, my point there is, you know, it was sort of, that was the test bed was the military. Right. Now it's common, right? I mean, it's yeah, common. It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody does it. Yeah. So I think the military just by, de- it, look, we're a civilian controlled military. I support that obviously to my core, right? right. That, uh, and I can give you historical examples of where the military left to their own, you know, their own ends would have screwed something up. Cuban Missile Crisis, McNamara yeah. and Kennedy. Um, we would have been in a nuclear exchange with the mm-hmm. Russians, um, yeah. and um, well, when so, you're when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. That, yeah, it, and that it, was, and the, that's and that's the point of it right. is like the strategic debate dialogue, the 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 ability to negotiate. That's not the mission, right? Like that's not the intent. You can't ask, <laughs> you know, you can't ask the hammer to screw in a fucking no. board, right? You can't do it. So the military is there to advise and assist ultimately yeah. based on, like, I think, I mean, if I have, if I have a room full of generals, I'm just putting myself into this scenario. Okay. But I'm going to have the head of the state department, the head of the CIA, yep. you know, I'm going to have everybody in the, 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 the job of the chief executive of the United States is to take into account all, all of the those factors yeah. and make it. And, and the chairman is not, you know, the chairman of the joint chiefs, general Brown, who I have, I I've met him. I mean, when he was yeah. a one star and I have a lot of respect for him. He, his job is BMA best military advice. He's yeah. not in the chain of command. The chairman by, you know, um, Goldwater Nichols uh, with the defense reorganization act he doesn't have any authority in the chain of command. The chairman can't tell anybody to do anything. In the, I mean, he mm-hmm. can't tell. He can't send a soldier to war. Yeah. Um, his job now. Don't confuse that with not power because he uh, has placement uh, uh, and access. Yeah, right. But his job is distinctly different from the secretary of defense. His job is to provide best military advice. So when you mm-hmm. talk about, you know, I'll give you an example. During Just Cause, and I date myself, I was a lieutenant in Panama during Operation Just Cause in 89. It's not that long. It's 89. Yeah, I'm sure it was just yesterday. Ask yeah. how many people were in the military then. Yeah. Very few. Um, but Colin Powell was the chairman, and he came down on, like, Christmas Day, right? right. And we were in Hangar 3 in Howard Air Force Base. And I remember he talked about H.W. Bush making a decision to do the uh, invasion. 
And he said, I got, because we had just done a big rehearsal down in Florida that weekend mm -hmm. for this, right? And he had made, he, we had done it. And that, what we didn't know was what was transpiring. There was a Marine Lieutenant that was killed, that was riding in the back of a car by the PDF, Panamanian Defense Forces. There was a naval officer and his wife that were stopped at a roadblock and, and they groped his wife. Right. Right. I mean, they were, you know, trying to, you know, uh, create an incident. And he said he gets called. So this all gets reported up to the White House on um, Sunday afternoon. They and all the cabinet members and Colin Powell go up to the White House. He's sharing this in the hangar with a you know young Lieutenant Hupmacher. And he said, and and it, the president went around and you know talked to every cabinet member. What's the impact of doing this? And they all gave their you know state everybody, you know. And here's, you know, no impact or, you know, sure. whatever. Um, <clears throat> and then Colin Powell stood up there and briefed basically the op order to, in a macro view. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's what we're going to do. Zero one hundred on December 20th is H hour. That got moved up a little bit due to the uh, Kurt Muse hostage yeah. for some of the elements there. I've met Kurt Muse. Oh, that'd, a be, few times. Yeah, that'd he's be interesting. A, he's a great guy. Yeah. And was that Acid Gambit? Acid Gambit yeah. was a submission, right? Yeah, there was, right, there right. was a, yeah, Acid Gambit. Yeah, he's yeah. got a good memory. Six Minutes to Freedom is Kurt Muse's yeah. book yeah. on a little bird. Yeah. Um, and he briefed the whole thing. And the president, you know, I like, you know, the, what the, the message here or the example here that I took from it is the president got the feedback from all of the cabinet members of the, uh, taking exactly what he right. just said. And then he made a decision to execute. I was living in Mike Durant's house. I had bought his house. I had the upstairs. He was the downstairs. He was building a house. And I had a pager and a funny story, our code word back in the day for a real world, right, was 1601601, right? That was the code that came across your pager. Right. And I'm sitting there watching Sunday night football because I just got back from the rehearsal down in the panhandle of executing going after Noriega and all that. And I'm sitting there watching the ESPN game and my pager goes off. But it comes across as like 016016. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the hell is that? And it took me like a minute, right? Yeah. And I'm like... Oh my God! That, that, that you know, the, the training one was like one six one or something like that, but the real world was one six zero, and I didn't know about all that crap that had been happening down in Panama that weekend, because I kept thinking this is nothing we're never going to do. We've been training right. for that. It was called Blue Spoon before the op, the, the code name for it. The president changed it to Just Cause. I always change it to yeah. some, but the ops was Blue Spoon. Blue Spoon. That was the name of the op. Huh. Yeah. So. And I went in and I, you know, I just remember, I was like, holy crap. And that was that, you know, sort of Powell briefed the president that afternoon yeah. at six o'clock. We were all in. Our aircraft were folded and we were loading five C5s down to get down yeah. to Panama. And we executed yeah, where, December 20th. So where were you at? You were? Campbell, Fort Campbell. Oh, okay. And then, yeah, and I'll never forget, We, you know, so Fort Campbell, we had an ice storm. Yeah. So I loaded and unloaded at, at least two, if not three C5s, because they'd ice up. We didn't have any ice de-icing equipment, oh, right? Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I kept an eye in, but I ended up, I would think I was on the last C5 that got what, down Were you there. flying? 
Yeah, yeah, I was a pilot. I was flying. So we had, you know, that you've the arm sixty and the one sixty that's called the DAP. Oh yeah. Direct action penetrator. Yep. So we had like two of them. Because they had two DAPs. Two they're DAPs. brand new. Brand new. So I uh it was funny. Cliff Walcott yeah. and I were flying together. You know, Cliff died in Somalia in ninety three. So we show up down there. And I brought my own pallet of rock. All we have was rockets and miniguns, two 19-shot rocket pods and yeah. then two fixed-four miniguns. So we come down there to Panama. We get down there, and I got my own rockets. And our regimental commander at the time... Were you flying off a ship? No, no, no. no. We were in Hangar 3 on Howard Air Force Base okay. in Panama. So uh, the commander at the time, we had Apaches come down from the 82nd yeah. and everything else. He said, I don't need more attack aircraft. They need more lift aircraft. So they took our, you know, I was like, somebody stole my puppy. I mean, I was a lieutenant. I mean, I get yeah. it. And, and so they made it, we were doing assault missions, right? I did a several assaults uh, through all over the country. Um, but the, it, we were all sleeping in this giant hangar, everybody, right? We're, it was like cot city. There was like 1200 people in there. And the uh, little bird gun guys, the age six guys, because we're brutal on each other, right? They're like, DAP, D-A-P. What does that stand for, Hub Mocker? Because you know, warrants, they have those. Yeah. You know, they are going to harass the lieutenant. And I said, you know, it's, uh, def- that, then we called it defensive action something, platform or something. <clears throat> and um, he said, no, I think it stands for didn't actually participate. <laughs> and the other guy said, no, I think it stands for didn't attack Panama. <laughs> So I was like, you know, I was like, okay. what was that? What was that like? Like when you, when you're like, I mean, this is their first yeah. combat. Yeah. We'd been doing the Persian Gulf thing, Operation yeah. Prime Chance. With, yeah. So I did three pumps over there, you know, looking for the Iranians laying mine. And we did have some action there. I wasn't. Did you involved. really? Yeah. We sank a, uh, the Iran Ajar, uh-huh. great book called The Tanker Wars. Okay. Talks about it. I wasn't involved and it right. was before my time. They, they shot up some bog hammers. Those, uh, those fast boats that oh, they yeah. used to yeah, attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there was limited people that got combat experience there, and there were a few guys in the unit that had been in Grenada, mm, yeah. but a few. Um, so, yeah, this was the biggest thing, you know, and I remember getting down there, and I'm like, this will never happen again. This right. will never happen again. I'm on the deal, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, 10 months later, we're deploying to uh, Desert Storm, yeah. and I'm going after the Scuds being shot in Israel. <clears throat> and the Little Birds, because of their range and payload, they did some great work. And I have, no, and I flew Little Birds too later in my career as an AH-6 guy. Yeah, um, you know, a marginally proficient AH-6 guy. I should caveat that with, but you know, that played to our strength, which was range, speed, and payload. So we could reach up going after those scuds being shot into Israel that the Little Birds just couldn't do it without putting a bunch of FARPs, forward-arming refueling yeah. points along the way. So we sort of got vindicated in Desert Storm, but I took some serious ribbing in uh, Panama over that. Did, did you did you have it, did, did you get, I guess, any action in panama like did you see yeah i mean i was on what i say action did i get shot at no or at least i don't know that we got shot sure yeah yeah. you know the best infill is one that nothing happens right usually the infill is the easy part yeah because they don't know you're coming it's the exfil yeah the exfiltration now they know you're there you've already Mm -hmm. kicked the hornet's nest going back in there it's much more dicey 
We did have we lost uh, Sonny Owens and J.R. Hunter and AH six got shot down in Cologne. Yeah, we had one of uh, the other one of our aircraft took some minor rounds through the back tail of the airplane. Nothing structural. I mean, it just right. kept flying. It just had some holes in it. Um, but for us, no. Now the uh, you know it just depended on where you were at and what you were doing. The AH six guys on H hour. On the on yeah. uh, the La Commandancia raid where they were going after Kurt Muse, mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely. We had one bird get shot down there, mm-hmm. um, and two guys had to exfiltrate. Ended up in an M113 yeah. from the now deactivated Fifth Mechanized Division out of Fort Polk, getting taken yeah. out of there. So yeah, there was some combat, but it was very intense but short duration. Right. I'd say after about 36 hours. Really, the main effort then was looking for Noriega. They called it the hunt for Elvis. Yeah. You know, we're looking for him. Um, and in fact, you know, a little known fact, the guy when they that picked up Noriega when he finally came out of Papua because, you know, he took refuge in that yeah. Vatican yeah, thing, Papua Nuncia. Yeah. And uh, the guy that flew, one of, the, one of the pilots, there was another guy, Bob Walker, that was on this, but the other pilot that flew him Picked him up from Papalanuncia, took him over to Howard where they turned him over to the DEA and he got those famous, they put him in the 130 flying to Miami, you know, for the, for that. Really for, famous photos of, of him. So, D- I mean, yeah, the definitely DEA go agent. check him out. The DEA ex-filling Noriega out of Panama is like, was there- Because there's a prosecution, there's a chain of custody yeah. thing that has to happen there, right? Um, and the guy that flew him over there was Cliff Walcott. Huh. And he was killed in uh, in killed in, in Somalia, Somalia in '93 on Super yeah. Six One. Yeah. Um, and I think I've told you this, but my middle and I, Cliff Cliff and I were dear friends, right? We flew together in Panama. We flew. I flew his wing in Desert Storm. My middle son is Mitchell Walcott Hupmacher. Mm. He's named after Cliff. I went to his son Robert's uh, commissioning out of Norwich. Was an Army aviator. He got out of the service, lives up in Minnesota. I'm still in touch with exchange Christmas wow. cards every year with his wife, who's happily remarried and right. on a and on a horse ranch in North Dakota. Great. I so we transition to Desert Storm and then tell me like what what that was like. Because now you're in Panama. You go from, you know, mm-hmm. obviously you know, those of you that are not familiar with Panama, it's a different climate than Oh yeah. <laughs> so so you're like, this is it. This is the show. Yeah. And then now we're in Desert Storm. Yeah. Like that read-in and then going after Scuds in the open desert. Like, I, I guess you'd done some training. Uh, or what you're saying is like you'd done some exercise out there. So you understood we, the desert. We, when we knew, you know, the, we knew when, you know, obviously we didn't deploy Did right Did you get away, any? Right. Uh, yeah. That's the main well, question. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, Mike Durant was on that too, uh-huh. by the way. Mike Durant. Uh, was on Mike Durant was on one team. He talked about it in his book. Yeah, yeah. And I was there, and there's mm-hmm. some pictures in there. So did we get any? That's a good question. Yeah. So I will tell you that we found Scud launchers, and there's there's open articles about it. Yeah, that we thought were Scud launchers. Now I think later the DIA people that focus on that, right? So what I didn't know. So a Scud launcher, a, you know, the tell which stands for Transport Erector Launcher, right? Yeah. That's what TEL, T-E-L stands for. Um, so, you know, I always wondered, like, how does the dude that launches that thing, where does he go? Because, I mean, there's, like, flames and everything, right? Yeah. So between the road wheels, 
there's a like a small box that he gets in there and closes that door and has his little <laughs> Are you serious? control panel. Yeah. And so there's a space between the road wheels, right, where that the guy crawls through there, or the operator, and they go in there. So, you know, we we saw him. We the, we went up the first night, and we didn't. I don't know if we saw any of the first night. I can't remember, but we saw um, we saw some on a subsequent mission, and we were shooting him. And Mike Durant and his team saw him. He had some armament management issues, which is that are a long story, but very hilarious. And, and we shot him up and, I'll, and we had, we had VHS video players that were hooked into our FLIR. Right. Mm-hmm. What I realized, if you didn't get video of it, like it didn't count. Right. Like you, you know, back in world war two, you'd say, here's my sit rep Diary. from my mission or whatever. <laughs> now, if you don't have it on video and downing <laughs> was the JSOC commander, major general Wayne downing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, kind of iconic figure, by the way. Yeah, yeah. He retired as yeah. four star, was on NBC yeah. as a commentator. But so we're we go back to our we're on uh, airfield. If you Google it, an R R A R A R was the name of this airfield in western Saudi Arabia, real near Jordan, right? Right on the end of Tapline Road, way yeah, way yeah. out there. So we're sitting in there and we're showing this video, right? And we're and we're shooting mini guns and rockets and everything. And I'm trying to get, we're all trying to get to like the, where the controls are at the back of the, the oh, launcher, towel, yeah. right? Yeah. We're trying to get that. So there's this DIA agent. And I think it might've been your podcast or Andy Stump's podcast where that, this was a Marine captain. I was a Lieutenant and he worked for DIA and we're watching the video and he's like, Lieutenant. It's like, yes, sir. He said, What's your magnification on your FLIR, right? Because, you know, he th- he's thinking that we're standing off, like, you know, a few thousand meters and shooting this thing. And I'm like, mm, no magnification on the <laughs> He goes, well, how close are you? And I go, well, I don't know. We're probably breaking it inside 100 meters for sure. And he's like, do you know how much solid rocket fuel is in that? Oh, my gosh. Vessel? He's like, if that thing explodes, like we can see that from space, and I'm like, and I just, I was sitting there and I was like, hmm, note to self, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good information yeah. prior and, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the guy flew over because, and then Downing would take our videos because you met the if you, you know, you probably weren't following the news back then, but you know they they. I was. I were, I still have Desert Storm playing cards. Like oh, tops came out with a desert storm playing cards. Like I was like, I was completely, I was 14 years old. I was like, completely well, the pursuit following of these scuds it. was a really big deal. Yeah. Right? Cause the air force, they're flying at 20,000 feet. They bomb some tanker trucks. Cause the same sort of mm-hmm. shape and things like legitimate target. Yeah. But the missiles were still going. Yeah. Right. And the Israelis were threatening to come into war. Yeah. And that, that would have been. Coal- yeah. We were aligned. Coal- Syria was in the coalition. Yeah. So uh, that's why Soft went over there, right? Mm-hmm. We went over there to go after this, really to prevent the Israelis from coming into war. And so do I, am I confident that we shot, leg- you know, real live scuds? No. Right. I mean, they certainly looked real for me. If you Google it, you'll see the videos and the pics of stills. I mean, there's no doubt. It's a very sophisticated decoy is what mm. I would say. Okay. Um, but they stopped shooting. Right. 
after that. Like when we were up there, once we did a few missions up there, no more scuds got shot into mm-hmm. Israel. So whether we were just a deterrent effect or whether we took out their launches, because their, you know, their A team was not out in Western Iraq. Like these were conscripts. I mean, I remember one night we were coming back off the mission and the Brits were up there too. And the Brits had a prisoner. And uh, so we got the mission just to swing through and pick this cat up on our way south back to the base. And, and I remember, I mean, I remember because it was February, it was cold. And we, you know, we brought the guy and we wrapped him in a blanket, you know. Um, the Brits took good care of him, but, you know, decent care of him. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't in a five-star right. thing. But later, I remember reading a sit rep on this guy or an intel debrief. And, I mean, he was walking down the streets of Baghdad, and they just picked up and grabbed him and said, you're, you're congratulations, you're army. serving your country. <laughs> and he ended up, he was in one of those outposts, those uh, visobs, yeah. visual observation posts or whatever. So I mean they were desperate, but they were they were va- they were hoovering people off the street and and uh, you know bringing them into service uh, against their will. Um, it's a it's a it's a really interesting scenario because it, you know you just been in Panama now you're Desert Storm so I mean at that point, especially from the aviation world, like there's. I mean, there's limited people that have participated in these events. And then- it was extreme. I mean, I think people could, could would be correct in this. Flying in uh, Afghanistan was much, much harder. Yeah. But at that point, flying in Desert Storm, we didn't have altitude hold on our aircraft or anything. And we flew zero alum only. Right. So no moon. So it and there, you know, the goggles, the NVGs, obviously amplify available light that's out there. And right? if there is, they don't none. create light. Yeah. So you get you cross that border, there's nothing out there. And well, you know, how you've do you seen do that, that when the video noise gets real loud, you get that like sparkling yeah, in your yeah. nose. That was that way the whole time. The whole time. And then we'd hit these ha boobs, and like you know, flying along one night, and all of a sudden I'm like, the other guy's flying. And I'm like, man, I can't, because we'd always have a, uh, a good s- spread. Right. So if lead gets engaged, now we have time to maneuver, right. arm up, and suppress to get past it or destroy it, whatever it is. So I'm out in, like, we'd have our IR infrared lights on. That's all you could see. So it's like a speck. And so if you weren't staring at it the whole time, you know, it'd be hard to pick it out. Right. And I'm, uh, the other guy, I'm like, I'm looking out there, and there's something. The FLIR screen is getting grainy, right? And I'm like, man, I could barely see him. I said, everything okay out there? You got good viz, you know? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I got, I got lead. Yeah, he's right there in front of us. And I'm looking down, and and I'm just like, yeah, I got that. Okay, something's jacked here. And I look under my nods, and there's dirt coming around the windshield. We're in this giant oh, sandstorm. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, so I, I said to the other guy, I said, hey, man, we're in a sandstorm right now. Do you got lead? And I'll never forget. I thought I had him, and I was like, oh, my God. So we're in a – now there, you know, now we lost visual reference on lead, so there's a procedure where what you What do you break. do? Well, you, 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 what you do is you take a, a certain degree heading, and the first yeah. thing you – Job one is getting separation both, both laterally and, and in yeah. altitude. So you you know we you, like if leads going north three six zero yeah and you're stacked to his left side let's say yeah then you're going to go to three five zero or three four zero and you right. start a climb okay 
And your climb altitudes are based on minimum safe altitude over an obstacle. Mm -hmm. So with that, so then lead will start to climb. You're turning and you're starting to climb. And if he stops at 2,000 feet, you're going to go to 2,200 or 2,500 or or something. Uh, But those first seconds to recognize it, accept it, that you've lost visual reference to the ground and take the appropriate step, that's where most people get killed. Is because they don't. They try to remain. They try to get back out of that weather phenomenon and find the ground again. You just got to commit. Uh-huh. And it's and it sounds easier than it is because we struggled with it in the cockpit that night. We ultimately popped out of, over the top at about five thousand feet. But it was there were about four or five minutes of where I was praying fervently. I thought for sure we were going to die. I thought we're going to crash. And we came very close to running into the other airplane. At one point, he passed directly underneath us. And because uh, we just, we weren't synchronized in the cockpit frame. Right. You know, so yeah, it was, I was, I thought for sure I was going to die over there. And we did lose an airplane. We lost an airplane with seven guys. Saw Major Hurley at Plank Holder of, uh, you know, our unit at Bragg uh, was on there with two SF medics and four crew members. In that particular night, a huge fog bank fill, uh, came in. I mean, it was so dense, I'd never seen anything like it. I go out of my tent to take a leak, and we had power cords running out with two-by-fours on each side of it. I, like, straddled the power cord because <laughs> I couldn't find my way back mm. to my tent. That was my reference point. And they crashed a quarter mile off the end of the runway trying to bring Hurley in because he, he had had a pretty significant back injury where he right. rolled down a hill. And they were seven were killed. Of course, their kids were all educated by us, which right. is sort of, you know, it's full circle. Yeah, it comes full circle. You know, I never obviously thought about that then, but where, where, so where were you at when Somalia kicked off? I was flying with the Air Force. So mm-hmm. after Desert Storm, I was an exchange pilot flying with Air Force Special Ops Command. The, my old squadron, the 55th uh, Special Ops Squadron. Now it's the 55th. Air Rescue Squadron out in Davis Moth, and I think is where they're at. Um, and uh, I had been out uh, training with the Marines at their fighter weapons school uh, called MOTS-1 out in Yuma. And uh, Durant, I knew they were over there because we actually, I was, I ran into the Somalia guys at Bragg. They were doing their final rehearsals before they loaded out. And I just happened to be there on another training, on another mission with the, with the unit there. And we caught up. I saw Mike Durant. I saw Cliff and everybody. We just, you know, reminisced for a bit. They had work to do. I had work to do. So I knew they were there. On October 3rd, 93, all the news was uh, alive. And I knew it was yeah. them, right? There was some conventional units there. There had been a Black Hawk from the 101st that was shot down about a week before that and uh, killed several, burnt uh, the pilots really bad. And then there was just like that big battle, right? The yeah. Battle of the Black Sea and all that. And I saw it happen and I knew that it was us, but I didn't want to call the unit. I didn't want to be like a rubberneck. Yeah, right? I just right. said, hey, they got their hands full, you know, sort triage in this thing, dealing with families. Mike Durant's wife called me about an hour later and she said, Mike's missing. Because at his crash site, he was super 6'4". Yeah. Remember, if you if you read about it, there was no, when they finally got, ground force finally got there, there was no one there, right? Shugart, Gordon, 
all the crew members, um, Fields, Cleveland, Ray Frank, Mike, they were all gone. The bodies were all yeah. gone. All that was there was dead Somalis and, and a burn-up aircraft. <clears throat> so Mike was missing. And to be candid with it, I've had this conversation with Mike numerous times. His wife called me and said he's missing. And I never sent anything to her. I said, you know, I was a captain at the time. I said, I'm on my way. Do you need me to come up there? Do you want me to come up there? She goes, would you? I said, absolutely. So I called my squadron commander and said, hey, sir, this is what happened. I'm going, I thought he was dead. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty logical right. conclusion. Yeah. And I just thought if it had happened to me, he would be there for me. Just to make sure. I mean, the unit does a good job of mm -hmm. taking care of those families, but I just felt like he would appreciate it if I was there. Just making sure that. I's got dotted and the T's got crossed. So I bought a plane ticket. The other thing I remember is I was on leave and I was like, holy crap. I mean, I didn't, you know, this was an expensive plane ticket to go from uh, Fort Walton Beach to uh, Nashville. And I got, and I still thought he was dead. And I got up there and I was looking for my bag and baggage claim. I'd thrown a bunch of clothes in there and they said, bring, you know, I brought, and I'd asked, I'd called the regimental commander, then Colonel Brown. He was a, uh, regimental commander then, yeah, and said, hey, sir, um, Mike Durant's wife wants me to come up. And he's, I said, I just want to make sure I'm not a fly in the ointment here. Are you okay with that? And he goes, yeah, come on up. And then I got off the plane, and I saw that there was that video of him, right, pretty famous yeah. video of him right after. And from a SEER school or survival evasion, that was like textbook responses of what he yep. gave. And they and show it in SEER school. They like, sure they, do, they, yeah. They, he they, spoke they, there numerous yeah. times. And um, and I was like, holy crap, he's alive. So then I stayed um, with the family for about two weeks, sleeping on their living room floor. And then I ended up being part of the team that went to Germany and grabbed him when he, uh, when he came back from Germany um, and then escorted him home back to Campbell. I mean, we're like, you know, the best of friends. I mean, we're right. very, very close. He's on the board of SOWF. I mean, he's a, he's a, and he's a super accomplished and humble guy. I had him is. on the show uh, a couple years ago. You can go back and listen to it. He's a, he was, he was running for office at the time. Uh, but I mean, you know, he's been able to transition, you know, very like you, very similar story, very successful, industry, in the business. very successful. Yeah. Um, and he put a second mortgage on his home. I mean, yeah. he tells me, talk to me one day about it. We were in Colorado vacationing it. They got a place out there. And he said, you know, it was a family meeting to start the business. Mm -hmm. They sat down. I said, okay, we're putting a second mortgage on the house. Um, and, you know, we, we got to be all in. And the family was all in. And the rest is history. Yeah. I'll have to... I'll have to catch back up with him. I'll have him uh, back yeah. on the show, he, hopefully. Yeah. He's a, he's a great, great guy. Yeah. So you... You're out of, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're doing your time in the Air Force. And then by the time September 11th happens, mm -hmm. like, where, where are you at then? Like career wise, like, where are you at? Where are you stationed? Like, cause you're a captain in 93. Yeah. Okay. I now 2001, I was major. Yeah, I was a major. Uh, I was a, uh, I was in a soft unit, uh, classified unit mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and uh, deployed shortly thereafter uh, overseas, uh, you know, 
near Afghanistan. Yeah, right. And then uh, right after that, I went back to the 160th mm-hmm. and ended up doing a couple of back-to-back tours in Afghanistan, out of Bagram, and then uh, ended up in Iraq. Uh, made, uh, first time made at like end of August of 03. Did a bunch of missions. Uh, in fact, Matt Best uh, was mm-hmm. with that in his book. Yeah. One of the missions I did was his opening chapter of his book, which gave me some clarity and some detail that I didn't have yeah. <laughs> at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and then I was just back to back over there and did right. a long tour in Afghanistan later in 11. Was that your last rotation was 11? Yeah, my last yeah. one, I actually went over there. It was an interesting, a new deal for me. I was stood up the Afghan Special Mission Wing, yeah, yeah. MI-17s, and then yeah. we had some uh, Porter Air... So it was a rotary wing, fixed wing yeah. sort of package to move Afghan commandos. It was really interesting. I mean, yeah. mostly what I did, frankly, was build the structure, what worked. They had a small unit that was working for the DEA over there, then doing oh, a yeah. lot of CM yeah, work. Those guys. Yeah. And uh, we took that as sort of the base of the unit and built it out, added the fixed wing to it. You know, it was a struggle because the the guidance was everybody out December of 14 then. Yeah. So we were, I said, okay, well, MI-17s are what we need to do for the rotary wing. They're already trained on them. There's no way. Yeah. And that, you know, created predictable friction with Congress because it's not an American bird. Um, and ultimately, I think later, long after I left, they gave them Blackhawks and Chinooks. My personal opinion was... That was a mistake. It may have been good for the industrial base, but that's a those are sophisticated aircraft. Yeah, I mean, um, you can you can work on a on a Russian aircraft in a fucking like farm parts. field. Yeah, it's it's they're, they're like about as primitive <laughs> as you can get. I mean, I mean they have like it's for context, right? Like you can replace sections of uh, depending on the on the on the airframe. I mean, you can you can replace sections of the blade. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you want to replace a blade. In a Blackhawk, like I've, as far as I know, you have to replace the entire thing. If not oh, yeah, all of yeah, them, yeah. then they have so, to be yeah, tuned and balanced. A- and like it's it's a really sophisticated process. Whereas like I, I had this story actually. Um, interestingly enough, there's a story about this dude. So like Masood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Lion of Pangaea. Yeah, he was killed by that uh, suicide, suicide bomber, bomber that yeah, was right before 9-11 or right after 9-11. Right on the day. Right. So it was like sequentially they had planned it out to the point where they were going to eliminate him. Uh, to try to and use and then Because hit. that would eliminate essentially the Western connection yeah. to the Northern, well, uh, not, which was the Pangaeas, which would yeah. have been our greatest ally. So it was eliminate him sequentially yeah, while conducting 9-11. And, but I remember talking, like having this conversation because it's fascinating. And I'd gone up to his grave in the Pangier, and they were talking about their helicopters at the point where, like, they were swapping out engines on this dirt landing strip in the oh, middle yeah. of fucking nowhere. Oh, yeah. And they were replacing parts that didn't actually go to that aircraft and like they were using all kinds of different yeah it was like, bailing it was wire cr- and yeah, incredible it was. as to the amount of ingenuity that went into fixing aircraft yeah. out of like battlefield seizure essentially yeah, not u.s maintenance standards no no all. not not at all and um they were talking about how they had 
like pounded a piece of wood into a section of a blade and we're flying this fucking helicopter around. And I was like, yeah, I turned to one of the guys who's a Blackhawk pilot. I was like, can you imagine? No. (laughs) Can you imagine like taking a piece of two by four and like carving it up and trying to replace a section section of the leading edge (laughs) of the blade? Yeah, no, that would not happen. (laughs) I had a friend that was flying them up north early on in the war and he was telling me a story and he said they were flying along, and you know the one thing you're really concerned about in a helicopter is bad gas, right? Because that takes out both oh, your yeah, engines, right. right? And he said he's flying along up in the uh, Hindu Kush, out of uh, out of out of Uzbekistan, out of K2 yeah. or something, and he's got two. He's over these mountains, and there is nowhere to land. Right. I mean, it's just if you even land, if you even survive the crash, right? Like you're not going to survive. The, you're not going to get out of the there. roll. Yeah. Yeah. You're done, or you're just not going to get out of right. there. And he said he's got two fuel filter caution lights on, and they're flying along, and you know that's like danger, danger. You know, like that's bad. And the, there was a Northern Alliance guy sitting in the jump seat. He's like, yeah, like basically, don't worry about it. it happens all the time. And this, you know, and I'm like in the, I was like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, bad fuel. That's yeah. like, that's, co- I mean, you know, lose an engine. Okay. Yeah. Now you got some options. You're probably still going to land eventually or may, depending on your weight, but bad gas when both, you lose both engines. Um, yeah. The big fan stops. That's like <laughs> really, really bad. I had, I had flown. I was, I was out in the middle of nowhere and I was like flying in a resupply somewhere. And we we were using Russian uh, contract planes oh, yeah, yeah. and and pilots. Yeah. And so we were offloading this like like generator this the size of basically my office. It was huge. Mm-hmm. So it's like a Antonov that we'd flown in. Yeah. And we'd landed in a dirt airstrip out in the middle of fucking nowhere. It was like it was a pretty cool op. And uh, it wasn't really like anything. It was just logistics. Yeah, it was like yeah, fucking milk still, run. Yeah, it was like cool. whatever. It's yeah. kind of cool. And uh, one. One pilot, one crew. He had nobody, like he had nobody else in that fucking aircraft. Really? I had no idea how he was doing it. So he comes down out of the background and we're pulling this thing out. That's it. There's one guy. And I mean, I don't even know how you can fight. You mean he didn't have thing. a guy in the no, back no, either? No, didn't have anything. One guy in one a guy airplane. In one aircraft. <laughs> and he comes out of the plane and he's wearing uh, a, like a blue mechanics outfit and he's got it like tied the top is tied around his waist he's smoking a cigarette he's got grease and oil all over his his hands so i'm thinking he's the mechanic yeah yeah right yeah. he's just like along for the, the for the ride he's he's like part of the crew he's he's got this hard boiled egg that he's peeled and he has grease all over his hands and he's smoking a cigarette and eating a hard boiled egg with grease all over his hands and the egg is stamped with greasy fingerprints <laughs> all over it. <laughs> and like I, I was thinking to myself as we're unloading this, I was like, the only thing that would make this guy better and more <laughs> iconic as far as like a Russian pilot yeah. would be if he had vodka. I am not fucking around. 30 seconds later, that guy tips back some fucking vodka. We pull everything out. He closes the door and fucking flies off. Oh, yeah. And I was like, this is so insane. 
Like on so many different levels, this is so insane. Well, we don't care. Like we're just like, hey, generators here. That's great. Yeah, Load yeah, it yeah. up. Let's go. Good luck, to you, bro. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck. luck to you. But just the fact he's the eating. Russians drink like I've never. I've been to Moscow before. I've never seen anything. Like I, I've that. never seen it, and, and it's vodka is like water. It right? is. It, it, it doesn't. Yeah. It, and they're so culturally in the in the in the differentiation between what's acceptable in like the aviation world from American oh, standards yeah. to like some of the foreign standards, especially like contract pilots and depending on where you're at, whether you're in Africa or, or, mm -hmm. you know, Central Asia or you name the fucking place, insanity as far as what they're willing to accept versus what we are. Their comfort levels for oh, things are like yeah. way their outside of the safety box. safety margins are completely different than us. Way different. No, you're 100% right. Yeah, we got in a... Uh, um, I forget where where exactly we were in Africa and um, in the back of this this uh, helicopter and there's just like it's just leaking, just like leaking like a sieve everywhere. Like every everywhere you look, there's like hydraulic fluid. It's fucking everywhere. And I was like, holy shit! I'm like, you know, I'm kind of freaking out, you know. And they're like, and it wasn't it it, it, it wasn't the guys. It's actually one of the other more senior guys that and he was actually is a former Delta Force guy. He's like. Uh, He's like, no, it's leaking means it's great, man. Well, like, it's fluid. <laughs> he's like, as soon as that stops, that's when we yeah. have to get the then hell out of this dry. thing. Then you need to worry about getting the fuck out. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, all right. I feel better now. But yeah, he's like, no, if that stops, we're in trouble. It's leaking, we're good. Nope. I was yeah, like, okay, okay. Yeah, yep. different standards, yeah. different standards. Different standards. Have you ever flown a Russian helicopter? I have. have you? Yeah, briefly. I'm not an yeah. expert. I'm not rated in it, but right. I have flown in them, yeah. We flew, when I was in Kabul, we flew uh, Dempsey when he was the chairman of uh -huh. the one. Oh, really? Yeah, and because uh, we were standing up that special mission wing. Yeah. And I even said to the three-star I was working for, General Bolger, I'm like, we sure we want to fly him in there? And he's like, yep, we're going to show we have confidence in it. I'm like thinking to myself, well, I'm riding with him. Because if he burns in, I don't want to be around to answer the question. I'll just yeah. ride with him. And that way we're both gone. Now, the trail bird actually had a full hydraulic failure and had to go back to uh, Kabul. We were going out to, well, I forget the name of that base. It was that old Spetsnaz base where they had the Spetsnaz thing. Uh, whatever they did, the commando and the SF training for the Afghans. In Kabul? No, it was or... south of Kabul. There was a big Spetsnaz uh -huh. rock formation that they had put their yeah. emblem on the hill. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure one of the listeners remembers. I've been out there several times, mm -hmm. but we were flying out with Dempsey out there. And uh, we were fine. We got out there, and uh, but the trail bird, because uh, General Townsend, I think, was like his XO or something. He ended up retired. Steve Townsend retired as a four-star later, but he later said, yeah, my bird did not do well. Like it dumped all our fluid and we had to turn it around and fly it back. I was like. I always felt like that was a, it, it felt like flying in a, in a, in a old lawn tractor almost. Like yeah. it just like yeah, truck, really. A lot of truck parts. I believe the really, main gearbox was a truck transmission or based no, on it or something. I, I think you're right because I remember they're talking about the gearbox and replacing it, oh, like yeah. literally pulling it out of something else yeah. and put it it's in. It's got air this, brakes and too. Like, and they only the got fuck? brakes on one set of flight controls. So literally, <laughs> you know, when you hear a semi go, Ch -ch -ch, yeah. they do that. Yeah. That's what they, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, and they built the MI-17 specifically for Afghanistan. 
Mm. It's got wide tricycle gear, yeah, so yeah. it brown out landings. Mm. It's more stable. Oh, interesting. Right? I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. They built uh. it. My understanding is they built it specifically for Afghanistan because the forerunner of the MI-17 was the MI-8. Right. And they flipped the tail rotor around to the other side. They made some other modifications, better engines. Right. Yeah, they built it for Afghanistan. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because, yeah. I mean, it's it's a simple, I mean, as yeah, far as like modified technology. Our we didn't build a new aircraft, but we modified our aircraft and added systems for Afghanistan and Iraq, both right. dust out, brown out landings yeah. specifically. Huh. That's uh, uh, the whole uh, aviation side of like the Russian aviation piece. Like, is there any airframe do you think that they've done exceedingly well that you've seen where you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's actually... I guess it depends on what the criteria is for success. The Russian MI-17, if you're, especially if and it's easy to maintain, it's yeah. durable. It's, it's not, like an AK of aircrafts, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good analogy. I think it's not crash survivable. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, if you remember that big 55-gallon drum-looking tank in the back. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. In the cabin. Well, that thing. We used to wrap, um, like, Kevlar around it to at least do something. Right. Because if you crash, that thing's going to explode. Right. Uh, where U.S. aircraft all have self-sealing fuel cells and all that. So I guess, if you know, supportability, ease to let partners and allies use it, indigs use it better, um, effectiveness, survivability, range speed payload. Payload, yeah, I think they carry a lot. Um, no, I think, I think, but in a general sense, I think Russian aircraft mm. are far inferior to uh, U.S. or Western platforms, both rotary and fixed wing. I right. don't think there's any argument there. No. I mean, they, Maybe about the Russians, but nobody else. No, I mean, obviously, different, they have a different well, perspective in design. Look at yeah. Ukraine. I mean, you know, you see all those tanks without turrets. Yeah. Well, why is that? Right. Well, because the way they're storing ammo in those turrets are not survivable. Mm. You hit a U.S. tank, because, you know, you got main tank rounds in there, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not carrying one and done. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, and they take a hit. They're designed for that explosion to go out and to help the crew survive. Mm. It's pretty clear when you look at all those topless tanks running over there. That's not the design. Oh, that's interesting. So they're still decades behind as far as, like, impact and technology design. Yeah, yeah and I think, well, that, and I think it's just more what they value. Right. right? Quantity mm -hmm. over quality. Quantity, yeah. They say quantity has a quality all of its own. Yeah, the, like there's a totally different perspective. I think that's the other thing between a conscript and a volunteer army, right? 100%. It's it's like 100%. this has been known for a couple hundred years, which is well, and they can't. I mean, there's you know, yeah, you see, I mean, you see it. I mean, mass desertions. I mean, it's just yeah, like it's it's a whole other conversation that we can talk about conscripts sure. versus yeah, volunteer armies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I mean, I I, I will like I I I. I love and appreciate our conversations. I do too. Look like, forward to it. It's it's a it's a honor and privilege to have you here. Uh, please go check out the special operations. Specialops.org. org. Special Great yeah. organization, but um, you know, do it. Your, look at it yourself and make your own conclusions. But I'm bought in. That's for sure. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Clay. Appreciate Thanks, it, man. man. Appreciate yeah. you, bro. Yep.